Shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? O oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? Do you blame yourself? No, I want to know. I didn't come here to talk fucking politics. I want to know. Your mistake is that you always stick to what you're good at. Where did you find her? No, I don't know. Why? I don't know. No, this can't be right. Hey, baby, come on. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand. Yeah, like sands. Like the ocean. Like Barbara Streisand. No, but stray sand. This thing that you do when you whip your hair when you're fighting with the arm and the hair and you do like a fighting pose. It's a fighting pose. You're a total poser. I'm not a poser. <laughs> I'm Lucille Ball. When I'm being funny, you'll know it. You listen to me. You have a gift. You have power. And with great power, there must also come great responsibility. You gave me Tell me your name again. I'm Venus. I'm Serena. I like to be in America. What's the payout? And don't tell me no $500. I spend a lot of money on these tickets. $96,000. Damn. $96,000. Dollars? Holla. Buying on credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. Do you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew? No, no, no. Not at all. I hate them. I <laughs> <laughs> Spend this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. father passed. I wanted nothing more than my mother's happiness. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? If I did not save her? Are you feeling nervous? Are you having fun? It's almost over. It's just begun. Don't overthink this. Pod, a 32 Fans podcast, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. I'm Opsonemski. And I'm John Gilpatrick. And today we're going to be doing our long-awaited best of 2021 movie bracket, 32 slash maybe 33 titles that most spoke to us and you, the listeners and critics Far are going and to wide. be going head to head against one another, crown the best movie of 2021. John, when you joined us exactly, I guess a year ago, was the attraction of serving as one of the vaunted judges 
on the <laughs> There Will Be Pod Best of the Year movie bracket. Was that, was that the main attraction? If I'm being honest with you, it was just getting to converse with both of you on a monthly basis. I just was desperate for that. No, this was definitely a highlight. It's something I've been looking forward to for a while. I joined you for the first time as a guest the month before you would have done this last year. Um, I would note, I think John is already playing politics and getting both of us on his good side for the voting that is to come. Yeah, well, we're not going to be influenced by anything like that. I mean, we are uh, very grateful to have an odd number of hosts this year, so that way we don't have uh, many tie breaks like last year. We compiled a list of 32, although I think really 33 movies because we have a play-in or two. This is a collection of movies that were our favorites, critics' favorites, consensus favorites, and we've ranked them 1 to 32 based on like the aggregate Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, and IMDb scores of those movies. So, you know, we decided what was in, but then once it was in, the ranking methodology was uh, as objective as we could make it. Don't complain why we, you guys rank this against that and we are going to engage in a uh, five or six round bracket where we pit these movies one against the other until we ultimately end up with a final four a final two and then a best movie of 2021 i don't always end up voting for the movie that i have ranked higher sometimes in the midst of bracket craziness sometimes a particular matchup uh, a movie that i actually didn't like as well as much as the higher rank will merge victorious so you know these things all have a way of playing out as uh, anyone who is a fan of college basketball knows, uh, with a few surprises <laughs> uh, along the way. The other surprises that we do have along the way, I think the most of any year, Av and John, listeners shared audio clips with us, including some uh, hosts of other movie podcasts in the metaverse. So we'll be sharing those along the way. And ultimately what that means is that this is going to be even more than the 32, 33 movies that John and Av mentioned, but it's really a celebration of what we liked and didn't like in the past year. Our way of looking back before we close the books on 2021, the year that was in movies. And really on that note, I want to kind of go right at you guys. A year ago at this time, we had said 2020, it's obviously the year when theaters closed, blockbusters were postponed, and I guess completely unrelated, there was a lot of movies in 2020 directed and often about women. What were the common threads to this year? Was this year thematically a sequel to 2020? It had the same sort of vibe, the same sort of delayed blockbusters, the main thing that you can say about 2021 was that it was exceedingly normal. This was like a very <laughs> normal movie year, despite the fact that, you know, movie theaters weren't open anywhere for the first chunk of the year and are probably still closed in some areas. A very normal slew of movies. We had a mix of blockbusters, dramas, kids movies, action movies, you know, it was kind of all over the place. If you didn't know any better, you wouldn't know that there was anything unusual going on out in the rest of the world the way 2020 was. I don't think this is necessarily, you know, one of the best movies movie years in recent memory, just like a very typical movie year gave us a very wide array of, of movies, you know, a fairly deep edge, even if, um, you know, the very top isn't necessarily as uh, top heavy as some of the best years. Did you still feel the malaise of the 2020 having to watch everything on streaming? You still felt that in 2021 or no? It definitely felt like a, a marked step up over last year, both in terms of quantity and quality. And I guess the two things that jump out the most when I survey sort of the year as a whole is uh, along the lines of what I've said, I think it was like a, a deeper year than I was expecting, but at the top was kind of shallow. Like there was a lot of movies I really liked, but very few that I would say I kind of unreservedly loved. And then the other thing that jumps out when I look at, at some of these lists and titles in our bracket is 
just the high quality of foreign films this year, which I mm. think was particularly notable, like how good they were and how many there were that really stood out. And of course, we're recording earlier this morning, the uh, Oscar nominations were announced and um, that best foreign language feature category I thought was particularly strong. I think last year was a much better year in terms of top quality. I look at my favorites last year, like The Assistant, One Night in Miami, of course, the best movie of the year because it won our bracket, Promising Young Woman. All of those and a few more would be easily one, two, and three in 2021 for me. I don't want to shit on this year too much uh, because, as you said, I think there's a, a lot of quality and that's why it makes this year's bracket even more exciting. I think last year, actually, the top quality I felt was stronger last year and this year was a lot of good. I oh. like the top movies of last year more than the top movies of this oh, year, okay. but there okay. were there were more movies I really liked this year than movies I really liked last year. So my top two last year were Nomadland and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and they would be my top two better than anything I saw this year, but the rest of my top 10 would probably be like movies from this year. I have maybe one movie that would have made it into like my top 10 of 2019. 2019. 2019 might be like the last great movie year. We'll see how the movie is. Oh, the last. God, that is depressing. <laughs> you <laughs> you know, might well, not be wrong. The industry has undergone a lot of upheaval over the last uh, year and change. Yeah. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen what the future of the industry looks like and what type of movies will be available and what will even be considered a movie you know, going forward versus, you know, TV or miniseries or what have you. 2019 to me is an all-time great movie year. If it's the last one, then, uh, you know hell of a way to go out top ofs calling the end of the movie industry as we know it but the theme i saw this year perhaps resonates with what Av was describing in a slightly different way trauma is the core theme of almost every single movie i mean trauma yeah. people that can't get over the memory of a loved one's death over being rejected in some previous life over you know relationship that has this level of trauma and pain you know something like a free guy pops out for not having any sense <laughs> of trauma but there was just this overwhelming heaviness and sadness to the year and you know Av and I have discussed in the past how you can't really pin the movies that were being produced three years ago on feelings that we were having in real life in the last 12 months. John, I heard you say this several times over the last 10 months of episodes that we recorded, how, ah, uh, you know, you just weren't in the mood to bite into a hard movie. I mean, look, the, the critic number one rated movie overall is Hugh Vadisaida, literally a movie about, you know, a massacre that happened in, in Bosnia in the early 90s. You know, we left that out in deference to just not having too much trauma in this bracket. Do you guys feel that? that to me, there were movies that were sometimes I had to bully myself up to sit and watch i hope they were good but i also knew i was in for a lot of trauma i think there's something there that idea kind of juxtaposes well with another big theme of the year which we've talked about in that movie musicals having like a little bit of a renaissance yeah. maybe that happened because it was such a great antidote to these really really heavy stories that we were because of across <laughs> okay sure fair enough yeah. i paused a lot when it came to watching some of the movies that were really acclaimed i went through like a pretty heavy January because I had to play catch up. Maybe part of the reason why the box office hasn't rebounded quite to pre-pandemic level certainly is the prevalence still of the coronavirus, but also because maybe that wasn't what people were in the mood for. And it's hard to really blame them. I think Hamilton, I would give the single biggest credit for why there's so many musicals in 2021. I think it just convinced Hollywood, not just the movie Hamilton last year, but just Hamilton the play, the musical, that big time musicals should be brought back onto the silver screen. Last point about 2021 movies, we had a lot of large fat pigs on screen. There was Gunda. Um, the MCU embraced pigs. Nicolas Cage obviously was embracing pigs. Thread I didn't uh, expect, but seemed to weave its way through 2021 movies. Was there any movie that really had a wider cultural impact this year? 
you know, people were speaking about around the, I guess, digital water coolers. <laughs> the Zoom coolers. <laughs> yeah. Struggle to come up with one from this year. I, I don't know if that, again, is a statement about the medium in general, the industry in general. I don't find that there is a ton of frankly, discussion or cultural impact of movies from the last year and change. Maybe the exception of West Side Story, I felt like that kind of like broke through a little bit more only because it was a title that people had already been familiar with. And although I don't think anyone actually went to see it, so maybe not. Side <laughs> um, of Spider-Man, like the, the box office numbers this year were a disaster. The, the mainstream discussion has followed. On that note, let's go to our first listener audio. Happy 2022, There Will Be Pod. Movie Ladder podcast guys are here. I'm Zach. And Brendan. Yes, we're going to connect to, uh, well, we're not connecting to anything, but we're going to talk about uh, what 2021 movie are you advocating for? So I know it's probably still going to lose its first round matchup because I'm really angry about the sentence that you put it to, but Tick, Tick, Boom was my favorite movie of 2021, and I'm continuing to shout that from the rooftops. It is a great movie all about finding your passion and a love for the arts and living in New York City in the 90s. Uh, There's really not a lot not to love about Tick, Tick, Boom, and it's my favorite movie of the year, so it better advance, even though I feel like it won't. Are you saying that the There Will Be Pod guys are the worst people in the world? That's what they are telling me by putting it... uh, with Tick, Tick, Boom. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I uh, watched a lot of movies last year, quite a few 2021 movies, and I have seen exactly one matchup's worth of movies. Every movie matchup has either one or zero movies that I saw, except No <laughs> Sudden Move versus the winner of Spider-Man No Way Home and Black Widow. Uh, so I guess I will vote for Spider-Man No Way Home to beat both Black Widow and No Sudden Move, because I do have Spider-Man No Way Home as my number three. No Sudden Move is my number six of last year. But let me just advocate for one that I enjoyed. Mitchell's and the Machines. Mitchell's versus the Machines, I think. Mitchell's versus the Machines, yeah. I I like it so much, I don't even know the title. Uh, (laughs) Super fun movie. I really like the concept. It's in the same vein as, like, The Incredibles, where it's that action uh, animated comedy family movie. Gets a little long at the end. I had a really, really nice time watching and I felt great afterwards. Lord and Miller are the same people who did uh, Into the Spider-Verse. So there you go. Very fun animated movie. It's on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. And then uh, make your own movie ladder and connect to a movie that somehow connects to Mitchell's versus the Machines. Maybe The Lost Daughter, which is what I did on my movie ladder when I watched that movie. (laughs) uh, Brendan, what are we watching on the Movie Ladder podcast right now? Uh, Well, we just finished up a review of the 2019 film yesterday. This week, we will be doing the Domino Gleason and Rachel McAdams film About Time. It's Uh, about time. Well, it's about time you guys covered the best movies of 2021, given that it's already February of 2022. So look forward to listening to this later. Have fun, guys. Their picks together highlight what a movie needed this year to have impact. And that's we got the most listener picks for a movie that is coming up very soon called Tick, Tick, Boom. And Tick, Tick, Boom and Power of the Dog, I think, are the two movies beyond Spider-Man that I at least heard people chatting up, not just in sort of movie Twitter world. And the two of them share something fairly obvious, which is both of them have star power from the biggest box office movie of the year that came out a few weeks before both of them landed on streaming. And then, of course, that's it. They also both landed on Netflix in late December. So I think Andrew Garfield from Spider-Man and Benedict Cumberbatch, who came fresh from the massive box office of Spider-Man, and then they had the accessibility of Netflix. 
And that's why I think also people were seeing don't look up. You know, I kept on quizzing people if you guys mm -hmm. saw in the 32 fans group, like, why is everyone seeing this universally panned movie of don't look up? And I think it's that a movie that has star power and that's on Netflix, that's accessible on streaming. Those are the movies that, if we can call it cultural impact, that people will give eyeballs to. And that's my 2021 lesson, really, is that Netflix and star power is a movie that people will talk about and will get eyeballs. And otherwise... I think you're definitely onto something, and I, you definitely touched on a, a key point, which is available on streaming and available on Netflix have, for some reason, become two very different things. And mm. something that's on Netflix that just, like, by definition means that people are going to more be more willing and well likely to watch it. It's either the Netflix cache or just kind of like the way Netflix organizes its user interface in a way that I think is much more user-friendly and much more and does a much better job of featuring its popular and top titles in a way that forces you to see them in a way. It's like they'll just like keep shoving something down your throat until you see it. Things get more discussion when they're on Netflix than if they're on HBO Max or Hulu or Apple TV. Whether that's justified or not, there's something about being on Netflix that just adds a certain mainstream quality to it. You don't have to have been in Spider-Man, but you have to have a real star. Like again, don't look up. Tons of people saw and everyone <laughs> was like, oh, this sucked, but they still saw it. Yeah, Ooh. some people liked it. The Best Picture nomination. Did you guys see the Netflix like 2022 like preview compilation? Yeah, I, I mean, that's that. all just around the famous people in this movies. Oh, it looked abominable to me, I should say. And so, if 2022 is anything like this year, then those are the movies that, you know, people will be seeing. And every single one is going to get a tweet from Netflix PR saying it's the most watched title in the streaming services history, even though we'll never have numbers to associate with it. One last question before we start the bracket. What is your 33rd movie? Meaning what is the movie you're most, you know, you're most passionate about, but that didn't fit its way into this bracket? I mean, it's staring at us on the bracket here. My, my main man, Neo, Matrix Resurrections, which we didn't need to regurgitate that fight again, but I'm glad we could still represent me for Neo and, and you for free guy. So that would be my most beloved movie of the year that didn't crack the list for uh you know understandable reasons both of your apathy i would go with a movie that i went to see with my whole family and that we all really enjoyed we've all been kind of like singing the songs too since uh remained a very uh presence in the Sinetsky family since then and that is the disney movie Encanto um that came out in uh around thanksgiving time and that i would urge anyone with or without children to go see Encanto. i just don't have enough kids in my household i don't know about you john so it didn't zero this way, but uh, I might have been a bit Lin -Man Manuel Miranda out, but uh, yeah. I think we'll see uh, we'll see enough of him in the bracket coming up soon. We left off movies that I think got some noise, but two or all three of us didn't like. So you won't see Last Duel, you won't see French Dispatch, Petite Maman, Titan. None of those made the bracket. Two movies I've championed, but I won't talk about now. Free Guy and Cop Shop, I think, are both great. The movie I would say my thirty third. It's my ninth number nineteen overall. Seven Prisoners. I already spoke about it. In a previous episode, I think in uh, October, November, Seven Prisoners, a Brazilian movie about urban slavery and how power corrupts. It's really terrific. It's, it's less than an hour and a half long. It speeds by, really great acting, plot, everything. So I would check out Seven Prisoners wherever you get your movies. Avanjan, how about we kick off the bracket with another audio from the Brooks family, the co-host of the podcast Digesting Cinema, the one and only Aaron Brooks. What is up there will be pod was looking through the bracket just one more time to see that once again my number one of the year was not even mentioned and that is Titan directed by Julia DeCorno her first film I saw of hers was raw I enjoyed that this one I would say I enjoyed even more definitely one of the singular 
most original movies I saw this year for sure, but also just some tremendous dance sequences, really uh, interesting themes, and uh, definitely unforgettable if you've seen it. I don't want to really spoil it too much, but yeah, I was surprised that it did not make the bracket. Uh, that is my number one of the year, though. Were you guys as surprised as Aaron that Titan did not make the bracket? Uh, you didn't want to get a bit more climax feel on your on your screen? <laughs> Yeah, no, I've, I've had enough climax. Did one of these like AI generated movie recommendation websites where they, they hack up to your letterbox and recommend movies. And the, the number one movie they recommended me was Raw. So I just exit out and didn't look at it. <laughs> you know, Titan was getting uh, a lot of buzz earlier in the year. And uh, fortunately, it fell off enough people's radar. So no one will have to suffer through it. if uh, Because I think there will be pods against it. John, you too? I knew it was not going to be my thing at all. And so I never bothered. Okay, well, having gotten rid of some of the chaff, are you guys ready to bracket? My time to start. They hope that it goes the way it's supposed to go There's fear in them all, but they can't let it show They're underprepared, but that may be enough The budget is large, but still Let's, Let's get ready, bracket So may we start May we start May we, may we not start So may we start Quick technical note before we start, we're doing the first two rounds back to back for those of you following at home. So when we complete all four quadrants, we'll have Elite Eight, Elite Movies. Before we jump into the bracket itself, uh, we thought it would be fun if we each uh, took a second and made a prediction as to who we think will emerge victorious from the bracket we're about to do. And for purposes of integrity, we are each going to remove our headphones as the other two people say theirs. My prediction for the winner of the 2021 There Will Be Pod Best Movie of the Year bracket is Nine Days. Hey, this is Sammy, and my prediction to go all the way is Shiva Baby, the Jewish context, mix of humor, horror, and focus will make it go. So Shiva Baby's my pick to win the pod. Hi, this is John, and I think the winner of the 2021 Movie of the Year bracket for There Will Be Pod is going to be the worst person in the world. All right, so if you have your uh, bracket card in front of you, which you may, then you know, you'll know you follow along with us. We're going to start in the top left. If you don't have a uh, bracket card in front of you, then you'll just uh, follow along by listening, and uh, you'll be surprised at what comes up. So our first matchup um, is going to be between the number 32 ranked Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a biographical music drama filmed and directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. This is his uh, feature directorial de debut. It stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, who's probably most known for having written Rent, the musical. This is a autobiographical story about his writing of the titular musical Tick, Tick, Boom. My impression is this is basically the musical Tick, Tick, Boom. So I was a little confused about that because I, I I'm not familiar with the real life work. There's like a, a lot of framing in this movie of like, you know, a work within a work within a work. And it wasn't clear yeah. to me what was actually the real musical, what was, you know, made for the screen, what was, you know, kind of something in between. I don't, I don't know if either of you have more familiarity with the real life subject matter. I didn't even know Tick, Tick, Boom was a musical i thought this was i never heard of it before yeah i thought this was a musical about the making of rent because so did i <laughs> i'm not a broadway guy and i thought okay jonathan larson rent miranda has mentioned how rent is very influential so i figured okay this is about the making of rent and he's just calling it tick tick boom because it thematically fits as a matchup against the worst person in the world people turning 30 but um no apparently everything in this movie is tick tick boom the musical in Tick, Tick, Boom, the musical, Jonathan Larson, initially as a one-man guy, stood on stage and sang or acted out 
everything you see in this movie, but through a musical stage. In the musical Tick, Tick, Boom, there is a musical called Tick, Tick, Boom. In the musical Tick, Tick, Boom, <laughs> he's trying to make suburbia and it gets rejected, spoiler, and then he instead decides to create this thing called Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah, so that basically Tick, Tick, Boom is about how he was forced to make Tick, Tick, Boom because his life, he felt, was going nowhere. Very interesting. Okay. And that will be going up against our number one overall seed, the Norwegian language film, The Worst Person in the World, which was directed by Joachim Trier. This is the third film in his Oslo trilogy, and it tells the story of Julie, a young Norwegian woman who battles indecisiveness as she traverses the troubled waters of her love life and struggles to find her career path as she comes up against the wanted age of 30. So before we go on, why don't we uh, take another listen to a uh, fan-submitted audio about Tick, Tick, Boom. This is Brett Haynes from Brett Haynes Reviews, and my number one film of 2021 was Tick, Tick, Boom. Well, I am a sucker for musicals to start off with, but Andrew Garfield really does sell it. it performance is worthy of Best Actor. Through his performance, the movie just it has so many emotional hits. It's so good, and it really does make you think of not wasting time, I guess, but also embracing the stuff around you because you don't know how long you have left. It made me feel, and for that, it really was the most powerful film I saw in 2021. All right, Brett, thank you so much for that submission. I will say that I uh, was very surprised at how much I enjoyed Tick, Tick, Boom. I guess I shouldn't be so surprised because one of the themes of this year is that I've actually turned out that I like a good number of these musicals adapted for film that came out this year. Two of them actually made it to my top 10. We'll get to later. Found Andrew Garfield very compelling. The movie just had like a very like light, fun quality to it. Kind of just like made the time pass. And the songs, they had, they had a great beat to them. They were very uplifting and fun. And uh, I just like, you know, I had a lot of fun watching. I wasn't so impressed by the songs in Tick, Tick, Boom when I first saw it, but no movie has grown on me more than Tick, Tick, Boom since I've seen it. And I'll have to admit, like, that silly song from Suburbia. Suburbia, which is casually predicting 2020 smartphone social media obsession. That manic duet with Vanessa Hudgens. I feel bad that you feel bad about me feeling bad about you feeling bad about what I said about what you said about me not being. Where they're sort of waving their arms around and at the same time it's describing his breakup. The swimming pool artistic breakthrough scene. Motion through the water. All of those really, really grew on me and I sort of remember them far more than any other musical number from the past year. And then I think it's sort of what Brett is saying, that the emotions drive this narrative. They drive a narrative that, as we mentioned at the top, I myself didn't know was a true story. And frankly, the story is too crazy to believe that it's actually true. You know, the movie starts off by telling you that Jonathan Larson, Andrew Garfield's character, died the opening night of Rent. And Rent was sort of, I guess you could say, is a piece of resistance on top of Tick, Tick, Boom. So Tick, Tick, Boom sort of salvaged him when he was 30 years old. And that allowed him to then have the courage to go ahead and do Rent. And then he died on the night that Rent came out. That story is so impossible that if I hadn't seen this movie, I sort of casually knew that the guy who made Rent died the night it came out. But if I hadn't seen this movie, I would have thought it was made up. I agree that the music like kind of like burrows its way into your head, uh, even though it's sort of like about nothing in some cases. <laughs> My problem with the movie is that I feel like we've heard a story about a young tortured artist a hundred times, and I'm not really sure if this is anything more than that. But at the same time, most musicals have like fairly traditional plot points. But I'll tell you two things I love about this movie. I think this is the best movie musical ever made. 
hands down. Oh and I still, I, I don't love this movie. I don't, it's not in my top 15 or 20, I think, but I think this is the best movie musical ever made. And the reason is that don't give me the big dance numbers from West Side Story or In the Heights, because big dance numbers are literally what stage musicals are all about. I mean, Lion King mm-hmm. took that into the audience and other movie, other stage musicals in that as well. What this movie does, and therefore I'm saying it's the best movie musical, is that it fully embraces what a movie can add to the theatrics of a musical. And the best example of that is the swimming scene, where the swimming scene, I, I, I listened to an interview with Miranda. This is, you know, as I've said, his first movie he's ever directed, which sounds impossible. The swimming scene was originally left out of Tick, Tick, Boom because Jonathan Larson couldn't figure out how to communicate the power of what actually happened, which was he was swimming in this pool and, you know, the lower, the lower east side. And that's when he had this breakthrough of how to write the last song. And it wasn't until Miranda found the actual swimming pool in New York and realized that the beats of the song match up with the length of the pool. And then he had someone like Garfield, whose father was a high school swimming coach. So like Garfield is this incredible swimmer. It wasn't until all of that came together. And then he had the background singers or the people around the pool handing out the towels and, you know, also swimming. It wasn't until like they used this cinematic movie moment that they were able to actually take a song that didn't even work on stage, but uniquely worked in a movie. And that's just one of many examples. I never felt that I was on a stage, except when, you know, literally they were showing Larson on stage. And therefore, I think this does something that will be hard to top. I think a future movie musical will top it, but I think this has set a new bar for what a movie musical could be. I think in a year that had a lot of musicals, including some of the most celebrated musicals of all time, like West Side Story, this is the musical that got by far the most love from the musical fan world and from our own world. I mean, this movie got far more listener submissions, as we've already heard, and we'll hear a few more perhaps, than any other. And therefore, but I'm going to go with Fred Hampton. My vote is with the people, because I am with the people. <laughs> I'm voting for Tick, Tick, Boom. I don't want to uh, lighten the um, telling uh, audios that we got from our fans and uh, Sammy's uh, very... Uh, poignant support of that but you know tick tick boom is a movie that i enjoyed the worst person in the world is a movie that completely blew me away and is literally my favorite movie of this year it's interesting that these two go up against each other because they do have very common thematic elements they both have this very hamiltonian um theme of like a person running out of time as Mm. it's like magical age of 30 where like you're supposed to kind of have figured out what your life is going to be. And in that respect, they're both kind of these delayed coming of age stories. Although I would argue that America in the 21st century, at least, you know, 30 is the new 20 in terms of coming of age. And that's kind of, you know, we kind of have this like 10 year interregnum period where we have the privilege of spending time in college and then like hanging out and figuring out what we want to do with our lives before we settle down. That's why Shithouse is really uh, an elementary school movie. Could be, could be. But yeah, I mean, the worst person in the world to me, it was the uh, the best acted movie of the year. A few scenes in this, in this movie that just like I can't get out of my head and I, I don't think I ever will. It just captures that feeling of being in your 20s where just like everything feels so high stakes, even though it, it really isn't and can't be. And, you know, you have this just like very magnified sense of self and of self-importance. As you know, you kind of like make these decisions that really will guide the rest of your life in some ways, but in some ways are probably inconsequential. It just really spoke to me as someone who is, you know, kind of moved on from that part of my life, but, you know, still always looks back at, you know, very fondly to that period of my life and, you know, thinks about, you know, kind of the different courses that I went on and how things could have been different and how they ended up how they are. And it's a movie that is, is really the only like A plus movie of the year for me. It's going to be an easy vote for me there, despite the fact that I did really enjoy Tick, Tick, Boom. John, can I throw a bit of a, a question at you before you uh, 
give your deciding vote. I said when we discussed this December episode, would that be accurate? Yeah, that was our most recent episode. Before the yeah. Year. So I said at the end that I felt there was a lack of emotional resonance. And I want to agree with what I've said, that despite the lack of emotional resonance, I do think that the lead actress does a wonderful job. And I, I was thinking about it a bit more since that episode, because, you know, I know you guys both love this movie. And I realized what it is for me. Even though she's acting well, she has no character growth throughout the movie. And what I mean by that is she has this sort of detached vague personality at the end that she also has at the beginning and then i thought about it a bit more and i realized okay how does her character go through the movie her character is driven through the movie by physical relationships rather than relationships based on intellectual professional or political agenda and even the very beginning of the movie when it shows her switching academic subjects it shows very briefly she's sleeping with her psychology professor, and then it shows that she's sleeping with the model that she's taking photographs when she becomes a photographer. And then later when she's you know breaking up with the various lovers that she has in this movie, there is never a intellectual, artistic, uh, professional career conflict. It's always this sort of flighty, vague, hard to put your finger on. And maybe that's accurate, as I was saying for many people, and it captures sort of a certain human truth. But I also think there's a very basic human truth, which this movie actually mocks in the only time it shows a character who's really driven by, you know, you could say political passion, which is, what is it, the <laughs> ex-girlfriend. The only time it yeah. introduces the fact that people in life are driven by things beyond this sort of, you know, flighty sense of indecision is a character who's treated as an afterthought. And therefore, ultimately, Julie, the, the lead in The Worst Person in the World, she sort of begins the movie the way she ends. What is her biggest secret? Her biggest secret is about flat penises and how she makes them hard. And there's just a lack of real-world conflict and tension between career conflict between you and a lover or artistic conflict or intellectual conflict. And what this is all reminding me of and why I agree with Av that this is such an obvious matchup is Tick, Tick, Boom. Because Tick, Tick, Boom is ultimately a relationship movie, him and his you know partner and his other partner. It's Jonathan Larson, it's his dancer girlfriend, and it's his artistic self that he wants to create on stage. That to me is more real. Maybe it's a slightly different persona. There are people who feel, even if they aren't you know writing Broadway musicals, that it's intellectual, political career elements that they have in conflict with their personal relationships. And maybe for other people, relationships are much more, you know, they come and they go for sort of hard to put your finger on physical, emotional reasons rather than some of those other reasons. But I think the fact that the worst person in the world erases the intellectual, the artistic, and the professional effectively from interpersonal relationships leaves the characters feeling a bit fake. That's not really how people are. And if they are like that, then they just come across very hard to identify emotionally with on screen. That's ultimately why, you know, I would take that plus that I'll throw at us and uh, throw it back at him. I mentioned this when we talked about The Worst Person in the World last month. It has my favorite female performance of the year. It has my favorite male performance of the year. And it has my favorite scene of the year. So it's kind of hard to deny. And that's why I'm going to send it through. I, everything you're describing is accurate, but I also think it's the point of The Worst Person in the World. And I did find myself watching Tick, Tick, Boom as much as I enjoyed it. Okay, like, why don't you just settle down already? And worst person in the world is sort of that. This is just life. I'm just going through it. And then it sort of dawns on you at a certain point. Maybe I need to be more than just doing what I feel like doing. And I think that's where the movie found its power, even though it doesn't really build on that tremendously to like a point A to point B to point C. I still think tackles that with the heft it deserves is why it resonated as much as it did with me. And I guess two to one. It's going to knock out our most listener beloved movie of the year first. <laughs> Let's give one more listener beloved then before we uh, say goodbye to Tick Tick. This is from Shannon Gates. 
My favorite movie of 2021 was Tick, Tick, Boom. I feel like most of the movies I saw, I really enjoyed. Maybe that's a lockdown effect, but I love Spider-Man as well. In the Heights, King Richard. I just really felt like Tick, Tick, Boom stuck with me a little bit more than those. Like it, it really spoke to me. I'm turning 29 this month, possibly that's why. I just love the story. The musical theater attachment is just something I'm really passionate about. I thought Andrew Garfield was amazing. Then my mom Miranda's one of my favorite people in the world and he was the director. And I came out of it and it felt like it really affected me and it stuck with me. So I love that one. A woman on the cusp of 30 has seen her favorite movie, Torn to Shreds by Av and John in the first round. <laughs> in the worst person in the world's defense in terms of the receiving eclipse, uh, nobody has seen this movie other than the three of us. Yeah, <laughs> I know, which is a problem, but I guess we'll deal with it if we need that to is, later on. That is fair. Our next matchup is going to be between the number 16 seed Shiva Baby, written directed by Emma Seligman, starring Rachel Senat as Danielle, who is a uh, another directionless female, uh, this time a bisexual one and a Jewish one, who spends a day uh, making a shiva call with her family. Maybe and the worst that, experience in the world. That will be going up against The Novice, written directed by Lauren Hathaway, in which a college freshman joins the university's rowing team and undertakes an obsessive physical and psychological journey to make it to the top. Both of these you should know are in my top 10. The Novice, I thought it was quite good. I just watched it. It's tough to not advance it past the first round, sort of like I feel about Tick, Tick, Boom. I guess both were probably in my top 20, but neither cracked my top 10. This is the bracket, the best of the best. Every single moving bracket. It is, to me, I think, with glaring first round matchup exception, best portion of the bracket, I should say. For me, Shiva Baby is going to go through. I loved it when I first saw it. I think we talked about it back in like April. So it was an earlier in the year movie. But even then, I could see this movie hanging around at the end of the year. And I still think about this movie in the context of uh, Cresha, which is a movie that came out five or six years ago, and how much I love that movie when it came out. But actually, I think it's a better movie than Cresha because it has like kind of a darker comedy that's associated with it that I don't remember about Krisha. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, this one was both funny and horrifying and I thought dramatically interesting as well. So it kind of checks all the boxes. It was well acted. I'm going to push it through. Uh, I'm also going to vote for Shiva Baby, but what I'm really curious about, forget about who wins, which of Shiva Baby and the Novice has more horror and anxiety? Shiva Baby for sure filled me with a much more feeling of anxiety and dread in some ways just because of like the way it hits so close to home. I mean, a horror movie about having Jewish parents is not going to <laughs> uh, escape my uh, comfort zone. I thought The Novice was pretty good. It didn't really leave uh, too much memorable impact to me. I feel like we've kind of seen this story done several times, whether it's whiplash comes to mind most of all. It's psychologically and physical um, abusive performance. We're going to make it a clean sweep on this one. Shiva Baby, one of my favorite movies of the year. It was actually, it was, was my number one movie of the year for most of the uh -oh. year uh, and was supplanted late in the year by a few others. Still a movie that I, I really, really hold in high regard. My uh-oh is because the next round matchup for you of Shiva Baby versus Worst Person might be a tough challenge for you to decide. Before we jump to that though, we do have another listener audio. My top two movies in the year are Tick, Tick, Boom and Shiva Baby. Tick, Tick, oh, Boom wow. did an amazing job paying homage to years of Broadway lore while simultaneously being an amazing story about what it takes to be successful, what sacrifices you have to make or sometimes don't have to make. And all while housing it in a story about uh, a genius who has taken way too early from this world. But I think my number one is Shiva Baby. It is part comedy, part 
horror movie almost the in its tone and awkwardness and and all of the things it just was the movie that I thought about the most after watching it it's very Jewish inside baseball which I, I think is interesting for almost anybody in the 32 fans community and it does do a really good job of showing the struggles of being young and trying to figure out who you are while having these expectations set upon you. So Shiva Baby, number one movie for me this year. That was Matt Stewart, we know from the 32 fans community, giving his shout out for what he had hoped, I guess, would be the second round matchup, but uh, he was one movie off. Yeah, so Shiva Baby against the worst person in the world. I mean, these are both in my top five movies of the year. Shiva Baby was number one in the movie of the year for a lot of the year. It was recently supplanted by the worst person in the world and uh, leaving me no choice but to advance it into the bracket. Uh, Shiva Baby, sorry, we'll be sitting Shiva for you. I'm going to vote for Shiva Baby and toss it John. John, you're like two, three movies in and you're in the hot seat uh, twice already. Oh, I know. I'll, and I'll this is you, a really hell. Let me give you the reason why and maybe Av will provide a legal rejoinder. I mentioned this when we discussed Worst Person. 12 chapters and the prelogue and the epilogue and the voiceover. It's a lot. A lot of it's fun and good, but it just becomes a lot and it feels like sort of a, a TV series. And Shiva Baby is this focused diamond where it comes at you, it puts you in this intense single scene and it never lets up the side characters everywhere are just fantastic i know you said you love the acting the two leads and worst person in the world my guess is if you had to choose some of your favorite side characters including just some of the crazy old women that are you know bugging danielle and shiver baby what does keeve say on 32 fans the best football team uh three through 26 or something um, 57. <laughs> I think uh, Shiver Baby might have the best uh, three through 57. I am going to put Shiver Baby through. And I wasn't thinking I was going to go that direction originally, but like I have the worst person in the world is my favorite movie of the year. Really like a six or seven way tie. Like I didn't have a strong number one movie of the year. And I put that on my list because I just felt the most strongly about it at the time. But for the purposes of this, like nobody has a bad thing to say about Shiva Baby Cena. I've recommended it to so many people. I've heard from so many people on social media or in our chats who love it. And I just feel like to represent the year, worst person in the world is worthy in terms of quality. We said earlier, nobody really has seen it. And it just feels weird to put it down into the final eight or final four, or even final two or one. Shiva Baby, I think, opens the bracket up a little bit more because otherwise I think Av and I are going to two to one put this movie through all the way to the end because we liked it the most. And I think Shiva Baby is going to be a fun kind of spoiler. So I'm going to just put a little chaos in here and, and advance that through over our number one seed and, and my number one movie of the year. Oh, wow. That's got interesting. You guys don't know what you signed up for. An agent of chaos is already. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, that was exciting. We'll now uh, move. Uh, we're going to go with two movies, both of which are in black and white both of which have people speaking in um, UK accents. <laughs> the 24th ranked movie, Belfast, a semi-autobiographical film written and directed by Kenneth Branagh about the experience of growing up in uh, the titular Belfast, Northern Ireland in the 1960s. And that is going up against The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, written and directed by Joel Cohn and starring Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington. Uh, you don't really need me to tell you what it's about. It's Macbeth. Did Macbeth hold the laurels as the number one remake of the year? I didn't think this was particularly necessary or interesting. I didn't get much out of it besides, hey, I guess this looks nice. And what's going on on the NBA right now on my phone? <laughs> 
it's a hard movie to kind of figure out why it exists, but it is going up against Belfast, which is a movie I loathed. So um, <laughs> I'm going to happily put the tragedy of Macbeth through, even though, uh, you know, it's sort of like in real life when a Cinderella seed knocks off, I guess, a heavy hitter and then just gets obliterated in the next round. Beth got there on the Shakespeare schedule. So it and West Side and Story. And the Cohen. Yeah, right. If, if Macbeth and West Side Story can meet in the finals, it'll be an old Shakespeare, you know, Romeo and Juliet, though, there you go. Av and I went to high school very big on doing a ton of Shakespeare. So I think I did more Shakespeare than, you know, maybe any anyone else who has gone through 10 years of English education in the U.S. Uh, system. And my conclusion, therefore, is that Macbeth would make an excellent high school staging of a Shakespeare play. But beyond that, it has no purpose existing. I'm voting for Belfast. Right, Belfast yeah. have a purpose for existing. And uh, to just talk about how great his life was. Grandfather, I guess he's dying in a lot of movies. Julius Caesar, the King of the Wildlings. I love Karen Hines. There's a wholesomeness and a realness to sort of the, the scenes with him and Judy Dench. Capture some of the magic of the movies. I'll give him a bit of credit for that as well. You know, Belfast to me is an easy win. It's in my top 20. Yeah, I mean, this is an easy one for me as well. As much as John loathed Belfast, I'm sure I loathed The Tragedy of Macbeth uh, way more. And it's not really this particular version or even this particular play's fault. Always had this relationship with Shakespeare and his plays where, <laughs> as Sammy points out in high school, I was forced to read, you know, multiple of them every year and just like always found myself breaking my teeth trying to get through them. The way people talk in, in Shakespeare just has never translated to me in a way that I could ever like felt like I understand what was happening in any of these things. You know, my brain turns off when people speak in Shakespearean dialogue and I made it about 10 minutes into this movie before I turned it off. I then tried again, made it about 25 minutes in, turned it off again. I have no interest in revisiting it or uh, anything like it. Hope that I will not never be forced to in future years. So we're going to get it the hell out of this bracket as soon as possible. And uh, Belfast moves on. One thing before it goes, you know, Denzel Washington, of, I'm sure you got that in your 20 minutes, uh, is playing the titular role. And yes, he plays Macbeth. The guy playing Macduff, who, spoiler, is the guy who kills Macbeth. You know, the Mac kills the Mac. Macduff is played by a young Black actor, but they're the really only two kind of speaking characters that are Black, um, and Macduff's wife. I wasn't sure if they're trying to be some sort of meta-commentary on an older Black figure and a younger Black figure, because the younger Black figure also sort of abandons his family. You know, I wasn't sure if they're that. I've read that in one or two critics' reviews. I didn't feel the movie whatsoever managed to channel that or validate that. And, you know, I think we saw from Hamilton, it's not only just casting, we have to do a bit more than that. The final one to round out this section of the bracket off. Two films, both of which draw deeply on specifically the African-American experience. That is number eight-ranked movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. Feels like this movie came out five years ago. It's already that, won an Oscar for Daniel Kaluuya. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. So Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther, and it uh, kind of tells the story of the uh, unwinding and then ultimate demise of that chapter and of Mr. Hampton. And that is going to go up against passing the, the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall, who also wrote the movie. It's adapted from the 1929 novel of the same name. Stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga as two African-American women. Both experienced this concept of passing, with which I was only uh, vaguely familiar before I saw this movie. And it, I guess it's the concept is a, a Black person who tries to, quote, pass as a white woman in order to be, you know, gained into acceptance by white society. It's a movie that I, I was just like very moved by, especially the first half. I think we spoke about this earlier on in uh, one of our summer episodes. The movie kind of just got away from itself a little bit in the second half, which um, led to me 
not being as into it as I thought it was as I was watching the movie um, in the first instance. It kind of just becomes more of a conventional, like, like a romantic love triangle movie. It's like abandoned its premise for a while. First half of this movie was like one of my favorite movies of the year. Really enjoyed Judas the Black Messiah last year. Just for the first half of passing, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my vote. It's like did stuff that I just had never really experienced before on a movie screen. John, before you and I vote, we do have a listener. You won't get a vote, but as one of the producers of this podcast, perhaps we should give him a listen. Sounds good, guys. Let's see what Alex Chester has to say. Oh, producer. My vote for the winner of the bracket is Jesus and the Black Messiah. The reason for this is quite complex. It's because of the 32 movies in the bracket. Uh, that's the only one I've seen as of uh, this voice recording. He voted for Jesus and the Black Messiah. Which is not um, in the bracket. Um, <laughs> his rationale is that it is, it is both his favorite and it's the only movie in the bracket he's seen. Some listeners may know as the secondary host of a podcast with uh, Obstinsky. That's what we call a plug in the business of. Ah, yes. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. A Curb Your Enthusiasm rewatch podcast. In sympathy with my brother, I am going to vote as well with his co-host, Obstinsky. Judas and the Black Messiah, as I said, you know, five years ago, doesn't have enough of the complexity of Fred Hampton on screen. It's a little bit too much paint by number. Yeah, I love passing. I talked about it at the time. It was, I think, my favorite movie of the year. It's still very high up there i love the whole thing i agree that the first half has more going that really hooks you in but i found the finale to be you know very moving and interesting and it's very well shot i'm surprised honestly i thought you guys were both going to put Judas the black messiah through so that makes it a clean sweep we're going to make this an easy one for the next round too we know how john is voting and i'm just going to pile on right there <laughs> i will say you know these are both movies were made in black and white this is both belfast and passing but only one of them had any reason to be in black and white where it served any purpose and uh just for that reason alone going to put passing into um, the Elite Eight. We discussed both of these movies, what was it, in October on the podcast? We directly compared them at the time. So it's only fitting they come back going head to head now. Yeah, you guys said that Macbeth was a, a bad remake and, and I would say Belfast was a worse remake of, of Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. Passing goes through two to one and we'll face Shiva Baby in the Elite Eight. We have one listener to not make our bracket, this is Three Raps with my favorite film of 2021, Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself, directed by Frank Oz. Uh, I believe this was technically released in the beginning of 2021 on Hulu. This is a very unique one-person magic show of sorts. It kind of stretches the idea of what is real and what isn't. I highly recommend it to anyone who has an interest in any type of live magic or storytelling or uh, anyone who wants to feel emotional at the end of a 90-minute special, expertly directed. I watched it back-to-back. Uh, -back. I recommended it to basically everyone I knew, and I think about it probably more than any other film that came out this year. So that is going to be my nomination for Film of the Year 2021. Speed Raps is going to be super canceled by both Derek Degadio and Frank Oz for calling it a magic show because I, I heard listen to a podcast where the host referred to that and they went crazy because they knew <laughs> something more than that. It is something that I really would recommend. If you're into any sort of just like magic or mentalist, anything of that nature, this is like a really, really good version of that. Great job of just like storytelling. It has a real emotional heft to it. I just don't even think of this as a movie. It's, it was just Me like too. a filmed version of a magic show. It's like a stand-up special. Exactly. It, there was no cinematic quality to it at all. Did 
once consider a movie. Although if I did, it might have cracked like my top 10. I'm not sure. I thought it was a great piece of work. In a way, it was in and of itself. <laughs> so let's jump to the other side of the bracket, the top right corner for those following at home. And the first matchup, both of these Avin John are in my top five. So we're immediately getting into, I would say, the true elite movies. Uh, that's going to be number two overall, Drive My Car against number 31 together. Now, Drive My Car is a three-hour Japanese movie about a recent widower directing a famous play by Chekhov called Uncle Vanya. It's directed by a Japanese director named Ryosuka Hamaguchi, based on a short story by the famous novelist Murakami. And Together is about a British couple in the 2020 COVID lockdown directed by Stephen Daldry, who I think I remember from 2008 Reader, a Holocaust movie. And the only actors effectively are the two leads. You can guess the roles they play. It's James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan. Let's go to one of our favorite movie critics, Lee, who listeners may remember when she joined us to discuss hockey and soccer movies going back a year or so. Hi, this is Lee Jutton from Film Inquiry. Um, my favorite film of 2021 has to be Drive My Car. Beautiful, emotional intense film one of those ones that you come out of feeling differently about life and everything i know that sounds a little bit hyperbolic but i believe really believe it's true raisuki hamaguchi did an amazing job taking a very succinct enigmatic murakami short story and turning it into a three-hour film that yet never feels too flabby never feels slow it is always fascinating the fact that he made not one but two amazing movies this year, the other one being Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, is God-tier output in my view. I think Lee captured how the director took a very short story and he made it into a very long movie. What could you take away from Drive My Car? It's not something that I ever feel like revisiting. Not that that's like a prerequisite to liking a movie, but I think that those tend to stick with me and like recommend people like check it out because it's uh, emotionally satisfying, I guess, um, in a way. But I didn't fall in love with it the way I think so many critics did. John, I don't think this is a movie I'd recommend to most people. I'd recommend this movie to, you know, if you think you're a cinephile, if you think you're someone who, yeah. you know, likes to go the extra mile or the extra, you know, drive then this is a movie worth it because I think it's very rewarding and I think it's uh, there's a lot there. Together was better than I expected it to be, I think. After me telling you that it's one of my favorites of the year, it was still better than that? <laughs> Drive My Car was also one of your favorites of the year. For Top me, it five, was baby. more just, uh, do I really want to go like watch a movie about COVID while we're still like living through it? It was just a hard sell, but I'm also like not a huge fan of Stephen Daldry's movies. Like the reader... I guess it's okay. I was like very, very turned off by Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which was the movie he made after The Reader. And I had no idea who was in the movie, who was the director. I didn't even know what it was about, frankly. I think I knew it was about COVID. Meaning when you yeah. sat down to watch it, you said, okay, it's by Daldry. You had your antenna up. This is after the fact where I could say like, okay, I went to watch this movie. I felt like I had a fairly open mind for a lot mm -hmm. of reasons because, because A, you liked it. I know other people who liked it. And B, on the flip side, this is not a director I like. This is mm. not a subject matter I want to spend time with. I think I ended up more on the positive than the negative side. I'll go with Drive My Car just because it feels like kind of more of a monumental achievement. It feels more relevant, like in the film culture right now. I like both of these a lot. I disagree with what John said. I think together 
right now is the movie that I will remember COVID by. Now, again, there's going to be, I would assume, more movies about Corona, you know, within our lifetimes, hopefully very long. Certainly together captured so many themes very powerfully, obviously a contemporary watch. Both actors, I had no idea who the female actress was. Uh, both of them oh. I thought were incredibly charismatic. She's one of the leads of Catastrophe, the great show. Okay, I don't watch any TV, mm -hmm. so I don't know if that is. Both of them, to me, were very charismatic, engaging. It was funny. It was sad. It was emotional. There was a complete story there. Together completely wowed me. There's another movie that came out in 2021 called Together Together. I saw that I, too, yeah. I wasn't really sure which one I was sitting down to watch. And therefore, even though I really, really do like Drive My Car, I'm going to vote for Together because it was the movie that I'll remember a bit more Drive My Car, I'll leave it with, I felt it was the most Nomadland of movies this year. And by that, I mean, to me, ultimately, Nomadland was about the lead character coming to terms with the memories past loved ones. And that's very much what Drive My Car is. It's a psychosexual about characters' repressed memories and repressed uh, emotions and how they sort of come to terms with that. And it does something remarkable. And I really think Drive My Car is a remarkable movie in that it uses sustained intensive monologues i mean literally literally the way they prepare for uncle vanya is the director has and he's very strict about this he has the actors just repeat 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 the lines and there's something as a metaphor to how the movie i think has these long 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 monologues many of them in cars which also just by kind of drilling into you end up really unearthing something that I never really had felt or seen before in a movie. So to me, it's very close as John predicted, but I'm going to go with Together and I'll let you choose. Together was a movie that I enjoyed. And I think the main thing I enjoyed about it, uh, as you said, are were the two acting performances. I thought the two of them were great. They had really great chemistry and his kind of seeing the like topsy-turvy flow of their relationship during what was, you know, obviously a very unusual and unnerving time for everybody. I thought it was a bit of a weird choice to kind of examine this type of relationship as opposed to like a more typical one. Drive My Car, I would say it's it's ironic that it's, you know, so associated with Chekhov, who uh, is famously um, known for the, you know, rule of theater that, you know, anything that is shown early in the play has to pay off later in the play because um, Drive My Car to me was something where, you know, nothing really happened in the first act and nothing happened in the second act and nothing happened in the third act. And I was just like absolutely bored to tears uh, for the entire three hour duration of watching it. I don't know if it's something that I did wrong in my approach to watching it or if it's just not for me, but um, maybe it's a type of movie I should again in the future, but um, I suspect I'm going to have the same experience. Drive My Car was a, a movie that was successful at the Oscars. Um, it's going to be less successful in the There Will Be Pod movie of the year bracket. It's, uh, it's an early round exit with the number two overall seed uh, being knocked out in the first round. So now our uh, our top two seeds are off the board as Together moves on to round two. Oh, wow. I uh, might have been too overconfident in voting for Together because I do have Drive My Car <laughs> ranked a bit higher but i have to be honest i mean together is the one that just kind of shocked me a bit more but you know together is definitely easier to embrace let's jump to the next matchup number 15 versus number 18 we have the lost daughter versus king richard we have mothering versus fathering both of these are in my top 10 lost daughter is about an older woman on vacation who confronts the doubts she had as being a mother. It's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal in her directorial debut, which seems to be a theme for this year. First time mm. director is knocking it out of the park. There are two knockout leads in this movie, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley. And it's also based on a novel 
by, I would say, the it novelist of the last decade, Elana Ferrante. King Richard, our number 18, is about how the father of tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams raised his daughters. It's directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, who also directed a movie I love from 2018, Monsters and Men, and it stars the one and only Will Smith. Uh, mothering, fathering, which one do you identify with and which one are you going to vote for? These are both movies that I uh, was very high on this year. I really got a lot out of both of these. The Lost Daughter we talked about on our December podcast. I really you know, love the way that they portray this um, version of parenthood that is very rarely depicted in film, that of the reluctant or ambivalent parent, which I think probably is a greater percentage of the population of parenting than than one would imagine. Really kind of the flip side of that, the over-involved parent who is like really um, micromanaging every aspect of a kid's life because they see greatness there and they want to you know, get the most out of that greatness. Very different movies in terms of style. I would say King Richard is probably like one of the most accessible movies of the year. It's the movie that I would like literally recommend to anyone. It'd be like the number one movie of the year that like in terms of, you know, anyone could watch it. The Lost Daughter is very much not so. It's it's very much more of a an artistic type of movie, you know, with flashbacks and, you know, kind of thin on plot. Just because of that distinction, I think I'm going to go with King Richard. I just think it's more, more accessible to a wider audience. Uh, we're trying to please the masses here on There Will Be Pods. So, we, we want to keep King Richard around a little bit longer. I'm going to now have to vote against Av because simply what you said there, I'm very much against the masses, except, of course, when I'm, uh, except for with Tick, Tick, Boom. There I was all about the people sure. because I am the people. Um, Av, I thought your vote was going to be because as a sports movieist, you couldn't vote for the novice, but you will vote for arguably one of the better tennis movies of all time. I'm going to vote for Lost Daughter and turn it over to you, John. I love the way that Coleman and Buckley have this, you know, talk about tennis, two people lobbing the ball back and forth. I love the way that they sort of pass it back and forth. Buckley, to me, you know, won't surprise listeners, it makes this movie repressed and yet joyous and there's this energy and she's effectively what in the novel, Jesse Buckley's character is the thoughts in the mind of Olivia Coleman. And here in a movie, we get to see them on the screen. And, and therefore, I think it's the Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley teaming up two against one to, to do a duplex on Will Smith, who I also think is remarkable. And I think Will Smith is working with a great script. John, which way are you going? I thought both these movies were real good. I am going to go King Richard. After I saw that, I felt really like joyful about it. It stands out amongst, we talked early on the podcast about trauma being such a theme amongst these movies. And King Richard, you know, there's certainly struggles and things that the characters go through, but I feel like, you know, the place it ends up at is really just heartwarming and especially at that point in the year I, it was something I needed watched it I think two or three times since then with the different people in my life because like I've said it's the probably the movie this year that like I so easily recommend to absolutely everybody it's tough to see one of these movies I think go out this early like we, we feels like we've said that a few times but this is a uh, strong corner of the bracket this isn't that you know nebbish bracket that I'll ghosted I thought the last one was good too I you know it's it's tough there's a lot of like really solid movies here these are tough choices I wasn't expecting to have to make so early but um King Richard I think is is for me the one I want to see advance quick aside Lost Daughter could have been much grimmer I thought the ending it gave yeah I agree was uh, about as uplifting as we could have hoped for at that point in the story jumping right to the next round we have together the number 31 going up against King Richard 
My vote is going to be for Together. I'm putting it down. I'm going to go with King Richard again. I think it was a far superior movie and far more impactful. I think it has a lot more to say about a lot more different interesting things than Together. Together was kind of just like a snapshot of an experience and it was, I think, a worthwhile thing to watch. It hasn't really left much of an impact on me. King Richard, for sure, goes past Together for me. I know you're passionate about that top matchup, but they're both both out of here. They're both guys. I was sure that Drive My Car would be the one to merge from these four, but then again, I didn't even vote for it when I had the so that's all yeah, right. <laughs> I was a bit overconfident there. Let's see what we have in the number 10 versus the number 23. I think this is the matchup that a lot of listeners might have been waiting for. On the one hand, you have West Side Story, the Romeo and Juliet musical set in the poor streets of 1950s New York. It's a remake of the 61 movie, which is itself, I guess, a remake of the 1957 famous, famous Broadway play. It's directed by another first-time musical director, uh, Stefan Spiel. I don't know, I may be mispronouncing the name. But Steven Spielberg is joined by really a next-level creative team. Tony Kushner adapting the songs by guys you may have heard of, Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein. So you have that crew of Tier 1 creative geniuses. And standing against them is one man. One man stands against them in the heights, based upon a play by Lin-Manuel Miranda. The musical about the Hispanic community in Washington Heights set around, I suppose, uh, the early 2000s. It's based upon the play that Miranda wrote when he was in college, and it's inspired, he has said, by Jonathan Larson's Rent. So all the musicals in our bracket are all really connected. It's directed by John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians, and it stars Anthony Ramos, who viewers may know from Hamilton, and as well, I think he had a small role in A Star is Born. Ah, would you say that whether to live in the Heights or on the West Side is a is a dilemma that many Jews of our generation have faced? Um, it is a common thing. Yeah, the Heights has become much more of a has developed much more of a you know single community for Orthodox people over the last I don't know fifteen years. The, the, the Upper West Side goes back decades. Twenty year old Av would have gone for the Heights over the West Side. Uh, 20 year old Av lived in the Heights because that's where I went to college and then I stayed there for like a year or so afterwards Sorry. and then I forgot your rule that in the modern era late 20s is the teens so that's right that's right 20 year old Av lived on the Upper West Side I like to okay. be in America okay by me in America everything free in America for a small fee in America which way are you going on the big musical matchup I'm gonna go West Side Story I thought in the Heights was I don't know I thought it was fine found it a little bit irritating if I'm being honest with you <laughs> the framing device annoyed me. I wasn't familiar yeah. with the musical before I saw the movie. So it was kind of my first introduction to it. And I think I had high expectations because obviously I'm a big uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda fan and a big Hamilton fan. I found it in the Heights to be just fine. West Side Story, I do sort of question like it's how necessary it was for Steven Spielberg to, you know, knock this one out. It's a good story. It was well done. I'll put it through here for sure. Uh, I'm going to vote for In the Heights and let you share why you like these movies and which one you like a bit more. The reason I'm voting for In the Heights is I think West Side Story has some of the most beautiful lighting and just an overall sense of mastery. But ultimately, both of these are romances. Both of these have young loves. And I just felt the leads in West Side Story have no chemistry together. While the two leads in In the Heights, they burst off the screen with charisma and chemistry. And therefore, because that core relationship, that core love 
is working much better in In the Heights. I'm going to give it the slight edge. I like both of these a great deal, and uh, I was surprised at how much I liked either one, particularly West Side Story, because I had watched the 1961 Best Picture winner earlier in the year and did not like it at all. So I was actually very surprised at the way in which they kind of really brought alive that story and modernized it and, and just like added so much color and vibrance to it in a way that really just like brought it alive that in a way that I, I really was, was captured by. I will give a slight edge, though, to In the Heights, and it could be biased just because of the more uh, personal connection I have to that neighborhood. Although I, I did spend some time on, on the west side of Manhattan, although a little bit more north than where this uh, the story in West Side Story takes place. I thought it just did like such a fantastic job of capturing the neighborhood of Washington Heights and just the, the myriad contradictions and just like different flavors and communities within But communities. every day is different, so I'm switching up the beat because my parents came with nothing. They got a little more assured with Paul, but yo, at least we got the store. And it's all about the legacy they left with me. It's destiny. And one day I'll be on the beach with Sunny Wright and texting in the Heights. I also thought the songs in, in the Heights were superior to those in West Side Story, which might be blasphemy given how, um, you know, well-regarded West Side Story is, but In the Heights was just like much more my jam than West Side Story. So yeah, I'm going to vote to move In the Heights on, and uh, sorry Spielberg, yeah, you lose again. In the, our last first round matchup, we have number seven, Mass, against number 26, Nine Days. John was saying he wanted a bit of a pick-me-up. I think this is not necessarily the matchup for <laughs> Mass is about two sets of parents who meet after a tragedy involving their sons. It's directed by another first-time director, Fran Kranz, who I never heard of, but he has a wonderful name. So shout out to Fran Kranz. And Nine Days is about a withdrawn man who has obsession for 90s VCRs, and he's having several <laughs> people compete for the chance to be born. So these people are, I suppose, are souls, but as far as we, the audience, are concerned, they have the mannerisms of people. It's directed by another first-time feature film director, Edson Oda, and presumably, to me, this has the feeling he'll be scooped up to be doing a next uh, MCU flick. There's a bit more MCU magic. Winston Duke of Black Panther leads a cast with a lot of familiar faces, Zazie Beetz, Benedict Wong, Tony Hale, and one of the Skarsgårds, since I think this was the year of the Skarsgård. Mass, Nine Days. I'm going to go with a quick vote for Nine Days. Maybe before we hear what the two of you guys have to say, we can go to our listeners. Adam for Mass. Adam Cohen here, first-time contributor, long-time listener, here to give a pitch for Mass. I'm a massive fan of these single-location types of films, uh, 12 Angry Men, The Rear Window. Mass is one of the first films of the genre that I would really put in that top tier. And it's just a captivating 90 minutes. The direction is near-perfect, timing and the use of silence and the use of sound and emotions. I think we're in a time where people are getting really desensitized to tragic incidents, especially where it comes to gun violence. Movies like these are important to give reminders to people. Make sure you are in the right mental space to be able to consume this movie. It definitely is a tough one. If you have kids, I, I do not, but I assume if you have kids, it would be even rougher to sit through. And I hope more people get to uh, give this movie a shot. A strong, lengthy vote for Mass by Adam Cohen. And the next listener may need an introduction, but I will leave John to introduce Hello, There Will Be Pod. I'm Max Colville, co-host of the It's the Pictures podcast. 
I work with uh, John Gilpatrick there. And my favorite film of 2021, and that would be Nine Days. Edson Odo directed feature that came out way back in July. Um, I loved this film. Uh, questions what's important in, in being alive and overcoming your fears. It had a really diverse cast that I loved. And uh, I can't wait to see more films from uh, Oda and uh, everyone involved with the picture. I think it should do very well. My vote is for Nine Days, and I actually am aligned with Max. It is my number one movie of the year. I think it was astonishing. Oh, huh. We spoke about it a bit earlier, and I said at the time, it's sort of like the grown-up version of Soul, which Soul didn't work mm -hmm. for me. I think the cast here is fantastic, and I hadn't really thought of that, but I think Max is right. There's a diversity, authenticity in the casting adds so much, and each of them is doing you know, such a great job. Nine days work for me on so many different levels. I hope I'll have a chance to speak about it a bit later in this bracket. That is up to the two of you. Break down the psyche of Max and explain why you're going <laughs> to vote against him when he, when he needs you, why you're going to vote with him. Uh, I'm going to vote with him, not just because he's my friend. We've been podcasting for like six years now. He said you guys are working together, so I assume uh, someone's making... <laughs> Someone's making the big bucks, but yeah. <laughs> I thought Mass was well done. The action was great. I love Ann Dowd. She's such a wonderful actress. You know, that movie just like kind of kept me at an arm's length, I think, because of the subject matter. I had a really hard time just motivating myself to watch it, to be honest. I feel like maybe we talked about that slide, but Nine Days was something I was excited about from the minute Max told me about it. I think he saw it at Sundance last year, so really over a year ago now that people kind of caught a glimpse of it. There's probably like 10 or so actors and actresses pop up around like the 20-minute mark of the movie when you're sort of getting into like what the premise really is it's just they're perfect for, and some of them are there for like a minute and others are there throughout the entire movie and I, I loved that whole thing when they're kind of getting interviewed and you're getting to know their like personalities and what makes them tick a little bit and I thought that was just great great scene in the context of 2021 that's going to be my vote it's going to make it through I guess I'll pile on and I'll uh, we'll make it a clean sweep nine days is immediately going up against in the heights I'm gonna go with nine days I thought this was one of the most beautiful films in years it just really captures so much about like what it even means to be alive and like what's important and, and what our priorities should be it does it through this story that was just like different and interesting and like it took me a while to like even like get settled into like what this movie was but like once it did the final like 40 minutes of this movie were just among the best scenes i've seen all year you know one or two scenes in particular towards the very end that i was just like completely raptured by i love the viking scene I thought yeah that was... that's that, that's the one that's the one i had in mind that, that that scene is just so beautiful the music shows like what life is and so it was just like so beautiful and so powerful i also thought that not to call out one of john's favorite movies of the year but you know often movies like belfast try to share like the power of cinema with us by having people interact and i thought that viking scene and not just the viking scene i guess you know multiple times that benedict wong and Edda winston duke get together that to me is showing sort of the power of cinema how like a moving screen can really transform someone's surroundings. Winston Duke, I recognize the face from Black Panther, but wow. As John said, there's an ensemble cast here, but he really does a lot as the lead and he really yeah. changes over the course of this movie. I mean, I guess he has to because that's the narrative. He was also in Us, which I believe was the first ever movie reviewed on this podcast. Oh. Sin Oda doesn't even have a wiki page, just FYI. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> I would encourage listeners, look on YouTube his interviews as to why he made the movie. We spoke about it when we discussed it on our podcast. There's a personal story involving Oda's uncle. My uncle, when he was 50, he, when he was 12, he committed suicide. And when it was right in nine days, was pretty much trying to connect, reconnect with my uncle. And at the same time, 
trying to instead of just like judging him through what he did more trying to uh, see the life that he lived and try to celebrate his life as well he had an uncle who is sort of the inspiration for Winston Duke's character. There's a lot of personality there, I think, in the movie and in the story. From this corner of the bracket, we came out with Nine Days, which will be going in the Elite Eight against King Richard. I'm excited to see where that goes. But before we say goodbye to you, there is one last listener. Let's see what they had to say. My favorite movie of 2021 was This Is Not A Burial, It's A Resurrection. Honestly, I think um, the movie just came at a the right time for me and that's why I connected I connected so strongly with it it's beautiful either way it touches grief in a very raw and honest way you know it's, it's in Lesotho and it's such a different culture and yet you know grief is something so universal and uh, I really connected with, with it so that audio was from one of the actresses for an award-winning short movie produced in 2016 besides being an actress in that movie she's also my wife uh, <laughs> listeners of the podcast may have an understanding of what she's referring to when she discusses sort of the loss and the, the sense of trauma. Uh, we watched this movie together shortly after uh, the stillbirth of our daughter, which was almost a year ago, actually, um, this month. And I know just watching the movie, I could see sort of the effect it was having on. We spoke about It's a Burial, Not a Resurrection on the podcast. It was the Lesotho movie that John, you had picked out geographically when Av and I were flummoxed. <laughs> see if you can maybe find one or two short scenes on YouTube, and if it's your jazz, it's really beautiful to look at. It takes you deep into a narrative of Africa told in a very heart-binding way. Should we jump to the licorice pizza bracket? Let's do it. Fire up your favorite Elios and, and chop up some Twizzlers on top. The number three overall seed, Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza. It is a coming-of-age story starring Cooper Hoffman, who is the son of the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Alana Haim, set in Southern California in the 1970s, and it is going up against the number 30 seed, which is Coda, a movie that stars Amelia Jones, Marley Matlin, and Troy Coetzer. It's directed by C.N. Hayter. The film's title is an acronym for Child of Deaf Adults. It's about a young woman who is the only hearing person in her family and is torn between wanting to go to school for music and needing to help her family's fishing business survive. We have listener audio that we can uh, play for you now. Tony Hill from Feature Preservation Productions. And my pick for best film of 2021 has to be Coda. I went into this film with no expectations. It's on Apple TV Plus for crying out loud. They just have Ted Lasso. But this movie was the biggest selling film at Sundance of all time. Absolutely won my heart over. It felt like at any time, oh shit, this is going to turn bad. Like if you look at the French film that it's based on, you look at the reviews for that, it does not handle this story well. But Sean Heller, as the director, does a fantastic job keeping it together. And I think the strongest part of this film is the family connection at the heart of it. They are wonderful. And I think Amelia Jones really deserves a lot more credit than she gets. Layers and layers of what she had to do. She's a, an English actress doing an American accent whilst doing sign language. I still can't get my head around how difficult of a task that is. And to have a performance that amazing. Like, fuck Lady Gaga in House of Gaga. And House of Gucci or whatever the fuck that shitty Ridley Scott film is called. She deserves the praise. She deserves the Oscar nominations for crying out loud. Anyway, that's my pick for 2021. I hope you like Coder as well. Uh, Risky. Yeah, that was Tony. Uh, I would love to see House of Gaga personally. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe one day. Uh, another listener who wants to speak um, support of Coda, and that's the great Olin Allen. Hey guys, this is Listener Olin. Sometimes can be heard on the Movie Ladder podcast recommending my favorite film of 2021 which is coda 
I know some of you had problems, particularly at the bookends, the start and the end aren't particularly strong, but I feel like the journey through the middle was very strongly emotional with a lot of humour and didn't have cloying sentimentality either. Also, there was a very strong segment towards the end, but it could have been the climax of the film. I think it would have been a lot uh, better at the school concert. It's just a nice journey uh, displaying the life of a community that uh, I don't think properly gets portrayed too often within film. Keep up the good work, guys. Love the show. And looking forward to seeing what you have to say about the films of 2022. For me, Licorice Pizza and Coda were both movies I liked. I had high expectations for Licorice Pizza. Obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson, best directors, I think, working today. And Coda, I had pretty low expectations for, even though it was acclaimed when it premiered at Sundance. It just seemed like a movie was going to kind of get under my skin in an irritating way, like saccharin. Um, And I really find that to be the case. On the opposite side, Licorice Pizza, probably my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, even though I liked it. I know I've talked on the podcast before about my aversion to sort of coming of age movies. And I think this movie escapes that to an extent, but not entirely. So I'm still going to put Licorice Pizza through because I just think it's a bigger achievement in terms of the movie making. I thought wonderful to see Cooper Hoffman in this movie. I thought he was really good. Don't want to do Disservice Dakota, which I do think is a, a very well done movie with great performances. So I'll go PTA here. I loved both of these movies um, to an extent. Licorice Pizza is not conventional at all. Very much a hangout movie filled with 70s nostalgia. The plot is um, somewhere between non-existent to to very thin. (laughs) The type of thing that can turn off certain viewers. But I had just like a hell of a fun time with it. The acting performances, particularly by Cooper Hoffman and by Alana Haim, both of whom I think this is the first movie they were ever in. The chemistry that they have on screen together was incredible. Both kind of represent opposite poles of this growing up, not wanting to grow up dynamic that they share and, you know, kind of really is the heart of their relationship and friendship soundtrack as you know any PTA movie he's just a master direction choosing like the perfect songs that like you've forgotten about and they just he just drops them in and choreography of sight and sound and music all in one Chris Pizza is the vote for me so happy you guys gave me a chance to slam Coda I think Coda is the most forgettable oh no bland, saccharine boring I thought it was like a TV show about teenagers at high school I thought the music teacher was in another movie so I'm so glad you guys gave me a chance to make sure it goes down zero to three glad it didn't get a single vote they did get two from our listeners <laughs> and oh, Tony is gonna know where to find you so Mr. Held Mr. Allen I'm sorry you'll have to come on the pod sometime in 2022 explain yourselves Riz Ahmed to me gave sort of the magnetic movie about you know, losing your hearing and what that means. And I get it's not exactly the same dynamic here, but this to me was so much more by the numbers. Two things I absolutely love in Coda. One is the condom scene, maybe the single funniest uh, scene of the year for me. When the father is sort of using sign language to instruct his uh, daughter's boyfriend to use a condom. And then I was exposed to a lot of acapella. Maybe I was going to college in 2003 to 2008, which was like the peak of the acapella craze. I think acapella is super banal and boring. Much rather you just use a freaking musical instrument. Coda in the big ending when she's performing on the stage and the way her parents were, because they're deaf and they couldn't hear what was going on, they were just making plans for dinner and talking about their clothing and looking around really bored. That was me and my friends in every single acapella event that we were forced to go to by peer pressure in college. So shout out to Coda for giving me the funniest scene of the year 
and giving me a scene that had so much truth in it. Fair enough. Um, so Licorice Pizza is going to go through and it will face the winner of uh, number 14, There Is No Evil, and number 19, Test Pattern. So There Is No Evil is an Iranian film that won the Golden Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival last year. It's directed by uh, Mohammed Rasulov, and it is a series of four sort of loosely connected stories to tackle the death penalty under totalitarianism. Light stuff. Test Pattern stars Brittany S. Hall and Will Brill. It's directed by uh, Shatara Michelle Ford. And this movie tackles issues of race and sex when a Black woman and her white boyfriend struggle to find the resources they need after she's sexually assaulted. Av, you were the one who sort of turned me on to test pattern and Sammy, you turned me on to there is no evil. So I feel a little bit torn in my uh, loyalties here, I suppose. Go, uh, there is no evil. Movies that are sort of these omnibus, different stories, I can take them or leave them. But first 15 minutes, which is its own kind of like unique section was so good. Absolutely horrified me and it's totally stayed with me. And I think that that's sort of like one of the more memorable like the sequences in a movie this year so i'm gonna put that one through by just a hair over test pattern i really found both of these movies to be very engaging and very powerful and and had a lot to say i'm gonna give an, the edge to test pattern its messaging was possibly like more subtle like the movie has like a lot to say without saying very much showing the story of a, of a couple driving around trying to find a rape kit um after the girlfriend is uh, sexually assaulted by someone else does a really incredible job of just showing the ways in which political realities and like political ideology sometimes come to a cross at each other like not always on the same page so much of the the rhetoric um in this country is everything just needs to be about abortion which is just to me this like you know uh ultimately like unknowable unsolvable like moral issue in which you know reasonable people can have just like very vastly different perspectives on like you know the morality of that but like when it comes to having services available for like women who are sexually assaulted like i i don't think anybody is disagrees with that but like that you know that's the consequence of of shutting down these clinics that you have these situations where just like people can't get the treatment they need and the and the support they need when they've been victimized the flip side of that is like they go great lengths to set up the female protagonist as someone active in politics there are scenes of talking about how you know anti-trump she is and like involved in the women's march and if something like this had happened to somebody that she knows like we can be like sure she would be basically playing the role of the the boyfriend character like going to the end of the world to make sure that like this gets handled when it's her and it's like so personal and raw she just kind of like wants to go home it's a sentiment that like obviously like i completely understand like she just like kind of wants not deal with it in a way the portrayal of that was just like really powerful in the way it shows the ways in which just like reality and ideology in a bubble sometimes like don't always um end up on the same page and i thought it just did an absolutely awesome job with all of that so my vote is going to go for test pattern there is no evil is a really powerful movie as well death penalty and the way it's enacted all over the world here, here in iran but you know it definitely rung home true the way that it's implemented in the united states as well two of both just like really strong political movies lots to say and i would recommend that everyone see both of them this is certainly as i've said at the end it's movies with strong political statements ultimately i'm going to take a step back from that the movie making in there is no evil is at such a higher level we discussed this on the pod you know, many months ago, and I think Av and I had agreed at the time when we'd seen it that you should just skip the fourth episode. But the first three episodes are such a total shift. There's a docudrama, then there's a thriller, and then there's a romance, and they're filmed differently. They have different lighting, different framing, different, you know, scripts. 
but they all have the same through line way in which the director manages to put all that together putting aside apparently they filmed this sort of under the radar in iran because he's banned there to use words john that you had said earlier it's just much more of a movie making achievement test pattern the relationship between the two characters never really worked for me. When it was a light, fun movie in the beginning, I was like, why is this incredibly successful and attractive and bubbly lady with this kind of loser boyfriend? And it needed, I think, the relationship to be a bit more lived in and authentic, pulled up later when the tension that Av highlighted comes to the fore. Because I just didn't believe their relationship, the tension between them, which is a tension, you know, that I've experienced firsthand in medical institutions play as true for me. And I think that's just a sign of not as a mature script acting and everything else. So there is no evil is going to be my vote. Chris Pisa versus there is no evil. Yeah, I'm a little bit torn here because I do think that like there is no evil is probably a better film overall. So I'm going to do a, an upset here and knock out another top seed in this region in the first round, potentially and advance there is no evil. I'm going to stick with uh, Licorice Pizza here, a movie that to me will stand the test of time more and it will be more memorable to me. I really like love the way it plays with memory and kind of remember things as often as like much more exciting than they actually were. And the kids, when like they get into trouble and like capers that are almost like crazy to be true and like often you remember them as even grander than they really were. Um, I just thought it just did a really incredible mm. job with, with all that sort of stuff. And um, it, it's a movie that really left a, a mark on me. Yeah, so Licorice Pizza to me is a vibe movie. Yeah. Yeah. From PTA, where he even says, look, we changed it from Soggy Bottoms, which is, as, as right. a lot of time says in the movie, it's a terrible name for anything. Because Licorice Pizza captured the vibe he was going for, just the sound of it. It was a vibe that I had a wonderful time with. One of the few movies I actually saw in theaters past year. The thing that... I really disliked with licorice pizza is the over-reliance on running. I get that the running communicates that sense of being young and the way you sort of look back and you're just always moving in childhood and, you know, the wildness of youth. You know, I understand why it works thematically. It's done so much, it becomes a weakness instead of a strength. But the problem with There Is No Evil is that the entire last third of the movie, the entire last episode is off. If it had been an hour shorter and had been three episodes, it would have gotten my vote. I'm gonna give my vote for Licorice Pizza. So Licorice Pizza moves on to the Elite Eight, going to go up against a movie that emerges from the bottom portion of this bracket. We'll start with the 11 versus 22 matchup. The number 11 movie is The Power of the Dog, which earned 12 Oscar nominations earlier this week, uh, which was the high watermark for any movie this year. It's the latest from New Zealand director, Jane Campion. It tells the story of Phil Burbank, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch a rancher who dislikes his brother's new wife, Kirsten Dunst, and her son, Cody Smith McPhee, all Oscar nominees, as well as Jesse Plemons, who is a Kirsten Dunst's husband, both in the movie and in real life. John, does he really dislike her son? We can discuss that further. Well, I'm not sure we should, but that is definitely part of the movie and the power okay. of the power of the dog. The Green Knight is the number 22 movie. It's a fantastical version of the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, it's directed by David Lowry and stars Dev Patel and Alicia Vikander. I'm going to advance the power of the dog. Green Knight, it's for me that the message in Green Knight was a little flat, you know, be more mature. And I didn't like Dev Patel. I really wanted Adam Driver to be in The Green Knight. Mm -hmm. But The Green Knight is one of the most magical, gorgeous mood pieces that I've seen in some time. It was the movie I was most looking forward to see in 2020. And uh, therefore, I will admit, <laughs> I, my expectations were a bit too high. Wasn't so impressed by it. These are two of the prettiest movies of the year. Yeah, for sure. Just wasn't enough dog or enough power in the first half of the movie. The second half gets going a bit more 
the ending has a great Hitchcockian vibe that makes you want to maybe, you know, rewatch the movie. It may have one of the best scenes of the year, which we spoke of already on the, the podcast, which is in the very middle. Basically, when the movie starts getting better, Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst are sort of playing two dueling musical instruments with each other. <laughs> I love that scene. Now that scene is maybe worth the entire movie. It might, it might be my favorite scene of the year, but my vote is for Green Knight because the visuals and the mood in Green Knight is really remarkable. And it's not that I, I don't think people all love it. I did not love it myself, but I do think that it'll stick in your mind far more than Power of the Dog. Both of these movies are movies that are, are really not movies that I would necessarily recommend for everyone. The Green Knight is a, a very artsy-fartsy A24 movie where I had no idea what was happening most of the time and it really cool imagery and cool sound and that's your jam. Have a drink, take a social drug, watch The Green Knight. Power of the Dog is a real slow burn. Really tremendous acting all around though. If you stick with it and are willing to really pay attention to every frame of the movie, I think it really rewards you and really pays off. Not at all a movie that you could kind of like watch and uh, and not pay attention to like very closely and, and have any idea what's happening, unfortunately. They both kind of have a theme of like toxic masculinity or at least people mm. who put up a veneer of masculinity exploring, you know, th those types of people and like how they how they really are when it's just them. Power of the Dog was a, a far superior movie to The Green Knight. The Green Knight is not a movie that I really got much out of once I left the movie theater. I enjoyed the time that I spent watching it. It kind of left me shallow at the end, whereas The Power of the Dog is the opposite, where it wasn't until like, the movie ended that I kind of realized what I had seen, and then I watched it again and really appreciated more on the second viewing, and it's a movie that I've thought a lot of more than The Green Knight since I saw it. So uh, for that reason, it gets to my votes. So The Power of the Dog advances, and we are... <laughs> At our final first round matchup, but before we get to the proper matchup, we have actually our only play-in game of the tournament. And we have two Marvel movies going up against each other for the honor to face uh, Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. We have some audio clips uh, regarding the two Marvel movies, Spider-Man No Way Home and Black Widow. Unclear why you're even having this bracket when the clear winner has already emerged. Spider-Man No Way Home was fantastic. It was a great plot, great effects, great acting, combined nostalgia from previous movies, somehow redeemed Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man from those two awful prior Spider-Man movies. Willem Dafoe was amazing as Green Goblin again. Even scarier that they finally took off that stupid mask and let him just be crazy with his own face. Just an overall great movie. It made me laugh. It made me tear up. It made me scream. It made me cry a little bit just a really fantastic movie real fantastic marvel performance you know brought back toby and andrew garfield and dr octopus was fantastic even made the sandman somewhat palatable really just a fantastic movie destroys the competition tremendous movie hopefully you had a chance to see spider-man no way home before <laughs> recommendation came in he said it would destroy the competition but i think a fan of black widow may uh, beg to defer Let's hear it. Hey, this is Annie Sinensky, and my favorite oh. movie of the year is Black Widow. Black Widow was always one of my favorite characters in the Avengers, and I was so excited to learn more about her background story and meet her sister. Natasha is always there to help in times of danger and save the day and sacrifice herself to make sure no one else gets hurt. Black Widow was a super cool and funny movie with so many great action scenes. I'm going to really miss seeing Natasha in the MCU movies, but I'm so excited that we will now have Yelena instead. Uh, 
when I saw Black Widow, I kept on thinking about that line after where the sister says to Black Widow, Garjo, oh, aren't you proud that like little girls look up to you because you're just a killer? What were your thoughts when you're watching the movie with your daughters and they were decked out in Black Widow costumes? All the superheroes are killers to one way or another, aren't they? That, that is fair. John, there's one more counterpoint to Annie Senensky, though. I don't know if that's possible. Hey, this is Matt from Pop Poor Review, the movie podcast, and my favorite movie of 2021 would probably be Spider-Man No Way Home. There were a few other ones I kind of wanted to put as number one, but this one won just because it's well-crafted. It delivered everything. It was teasing to us, and I will definitely never forget where I was when I saw this movie in theaters. Listener-wise, we're two to one in favor of Spider-Man No Way Home. Between these two movies, I do think Annie Sinetsky's case was very compelling for me personally. I found both of these movies to be middle of the road, Marvel movies. I, I actually preferred, I think, Shang-Chi as my favorite of 21 of Marvel movies. I'm going to go with Black Widow in this case. Annie articulated herself so well, and uh, I'm a little bit frightened for my position on the podcast. I think she would be a great co-host. <laughs> she would be. She's a natural speaker. We may need to draft the whole Sinetsky family. Oh, you're the one who should have drafted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. This might get me in trouble at home, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, um, you know, I, I, I did like Black Widow a lot. I thought it was uh, an above-average MC slightly but um, I thought Spider-Man No Way Home was kind of a much higher level although I, I did have my gripes with it the the first act and the third act basically everything involving Doctor Strange I thought didn't work at all the middle like hour and a half of the movie was top level MCU as good as almost anything that they've done in the last 10-15 years thing with with the multiverse and with the, the villains and the different Spider-Men you know the way they all played off each other was just I thought absolutely marvelous better than I ever could have imagined knowing going in what, what they were trying to pull off in this movie it just like all of that stuff delivered better than I ever could have expected. So I'm going to vote for Spider-Man. I think my younger daughter likes Spider-Man more than Black Widow. So I'll just um, have to be friendlier to her for a little bit until this blows over. I promise you to explain to me, why is she named after a spider? Spider-Man Black Widow was one spider against another spider. They're called widows. That's what they called like all those like girls that they kidnapped and were using to like make into assassin. They called them widows. But why is she the Black Widow? Oh, I don't know. Because a black widow is the name of a dangerous spider. Black. The final shot is right, like it's like a, it's like a web. Curious whether her sister is going to maintain that Russian accent in all of her, you know, future MCU scenes. No, they'll probably do the same thing they did with Elizabeth Olsen, just like slowly phase it out, and then she'll just be like from Illinois, Ohio, Ohio. Ohio. Right. Spider Man has been criticized because they say the stakes seem so small. I mean, you know, he's doing everything basically because he wants to get into an Ivy League school. MIT is that it? So the stakes seem very small, but I actually like that. I think Spider-Man is your friendly neighborhood, you know, spider guy. He's catching thieves, running out of banks or, you know, stealing watches from old ladies. He doesn't need to be fighting intergalactic purple titans. One of the things I think I like the most in Spider-Man is that they made the stakes so sort of small and innocent. And as John confessed to on our Spider-Man episode in December, I haven't seen the previous standalone Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland, and I haven't seen any of the previous ones with Garfield and whoever his name is. Or, no, you know, I might have not been enough of the audience that Spider-Man was going for. Both of these were some of the most fun I've had watching an MCU movie. Not necessarily my top five or maybe top 10 MCUs all time. Oddly, I'm agreeing with you of, I absolutely love the first Doctor Strange, and I thought he was by far the worst part of the Spider-Man movie. If you take him out, it's a better movie. Maybe take him out and take out the Sandman. Bottom line, though, is I'm making my choice based upon past. I thought Black Widow, which was the best James Bond movie far and away of the year. I will argue to my last breath that Black Widow was entirely a James Bond movie. Everything about it just screamed Bond. You know, jumping from city to city, 
going to fight the evil Russian guy in his floating, you know, space station with hooded minions and everything like that, getting captured, escaping, having fake masks, a la Mission Impossible. Cast of Black Widow is much better than the cast of Spider-Man. And what I mean by that, before you throw all your, you know, old Spider-Man at me, is that there's no chemistry between Tom Holland and his high school friends, particularly Zendaya, his girlfriend. I mean, Zendaya was barely in Dune, and we'll get to that later, but she has a lot more chemistry with Chalamet and Dune, and they barely hold the screen together than she does with Holland. And what I don't understand about that is you guys, the Daily Planet, more than me, but apparently Holland and Zendaya are a couple in real life, uh, you know, the power of the doll. I didn't know that. I mean, maybe I read more MCU gossip than you guys. So <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me how there's so little chemistry, not only between the two of them, which this movie, Spider-Man, really wants you to make as the key dramatic stake, him being there for her, but also, you know, his chubby uh, friend. Don't know why he's in the movie. He's the one who kind of learns magic in a second and then, you know, saves the day. To me, the cast in Black Widow knocks it out of the park. The dad is great. The mom's okay. The bad guys are okay. The sister is fantastic, as Annie said so well. So the cast is why my vote goes to Black Widow. Wow. So Black Widow goes past one of the biggest movies of all time at the box office, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. And Black Widow is now going to go up against No Sudden Move, which is uh, sort of a caper movie starring uh, Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, David Harbour, who was also in Black Widow. Um, Brendan Fraser, set in the 1950s Detroit. I mentioned earlier, it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. Uh, when we talked about it over the summer, I mentioned that it's basically the origin story of the catalytic converter, which is kind of weird and funny. Uh, one of my favorite movies of the year, and I'm definitely going to put it past Black Widow. I'm definitely going to not put it past Black Widow. I'm, I'm doubling <laughs> down. Annie Sinetsky and I, I'm two for two for you, Annie. So you definitely have Sorry, to Annie. join us. You have, definitely have to join us on the podcast at some point this year. Black Widow is just a lot more fun. The problem with Southern Move, the camera sometimes I know, yeah. annoying. And then also- Just like fisheye thing. Yeah, and then the plot is trying to be dizzying, but at a certain point, I just didn't know what was going on. And it didn't yep. have that sort of Cone Brothers. You're not even sure, but it's just such a great time with so many funny characters. You're just along for the ride. I think Steve Soderbergh does that pretty well. So maybe Soderbergh. <laughs> but maybe it just well. it just didn't work. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, I just I just got very convoluted, and I just didn't care enough to keep following along with it. Really like James Bond. I came into this year wanting to see a great Bond movie, and ScarJo delivered. So uh, Black Widow, you got my vote. I'm going to go with Sammy and uh, and his friend Annie. Buying yeah, some I mean, goodwill back. I voted against Black Widow before I voted for it. John Kerry once said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, No no Summit Move was a movie that like I like loved the first hour of. I was just like completely drawn in, taking us into this world and like this like plot within a plot and like trying to, you know, figure out what's going on and like a great depiction of just like desperate people taking desperate measures. Kind of to Sammy's point, it just really lost the thread for me at a certain point. And it got to the point where I was like, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know why anybody's doing what they're doing. I I don't know what the, the central thing here. And then it, it kind of reveals some stuff at the very end. Like, I feel like this movie would have been better if they kind of left the audience less in the dark. There was a point where I was just like, I, I just lost all sense of motivations as a result, lost interest in like the second half of the movie. Whereas Black Widow, I was uh, engaged from beginning to end, a fitting send off for one of the Avengers best characters. So it gets my vote once again. Okay, so Black Widow is just carving her way through this bracket. Is she going to get taken out by the power of the dog? Uh, oh, Doctor our, Strange our... returns once again. Indeed, right. yes. <laughs> Peter Parker's original girlfriend. So Black Widow versus Power of the Dog for me, uh, I'm going to say Power of the Dog goes through. When I was in the army a bunch of years ago, I successfully got a day off because I had, talk about the, the gossip rags, the Hollywood news, I successfully had uh, lobbied for the fact that Scarlett Johansson had recently divorced or broken up with her partner at the time, and she was single. 
And so I uh, told my commanding officer that I needed a day off so that I could at least, uh, you know, take my best shot and try to see if she would respond to my uh, you know, proposal to go on a date with me. Uh, she did not respond, suffice to say, and uh, I did get the day off from the army, though, uh, because my officer thought it was so ridiculous. So I've always had a really, really strong affection, shall we say, for ScarJo, and she didn't let me down with Black Widow. And Power the Dog is the movie of this corner of the bracket that we said several times is the more cinematic achievement. I do agree with Av that I think it's a movie that will grow on me. I think the weakest part of Black Widow might be the end credit scene because I just had no interest in that. And I was also confused by the very end of Power of the Dog, which also threw me for a loop and I had to literally go back and watch a good chunk of the movie again. Close, it is close, but I'm gonna go with Black Widow. Oh boy, Av, another tie to break, essentially another heart's break. To once again, um, take the power of the dog and give it back to the people. Black Widow was a movie that many people can and should see. Uh, the Power of the Dog, a movie only for niche audience of film critics elite. My I, mom I, loved I, The Power of the Dog, by the way. Yeah, I, mean, I, know, I, know, I know a few people who saw it just like absolutely hated it. It's like not a movie that I at all feel comfortable recommending to someone who isn't like a cinephile because they're going to be angry at me. This is a tough call. Power of the Dog certainly at this point looks like the front runner to win Best Picture. You know, will uh, receive all those accolades. It will not, however, receive the accolades Ugh. of There Will Be Pod, Best of 2021, Black Widow, advances yet again and kills the dog. I am really regretting not putting Spider-Man through because I'm not sure we would think we'd be in a different place. Instead, two of my top 10 movies of the year were knocked out by uh, my second or third favorite Marvel movie of the year. Well, that's how it goes. We'll pick it back up when Licorice Pizza faces Black Widow in the Elite Eight. We do have a listener, uh, Cedric, his favorite movie of the year. Hi, there will be pod. I'm Cedric, and the movie I chose as my favorite of 2021 is The Humans written and directed by Stephen Karam. Now, I love a slow burn, and man, this burns so slowly. It's about a family that gets together for Thanksgiving in a stark lower Manhattan apartment, and things are tense and tentative in a subtle way all the way through until things in the outside world become menacing. This kept me on the edge of my seat, like the first long incline of a roller coaster that might or might not reach the crest. Intrigued? Is your interest piqued? Check it out for yourself and let me know your thoughts at the said set on Twitter. Thanks for letting me share. Bye bye. I saw the humans. I don't know if you guys did. And no, I did not. It's very well reviewed. It has like, you know, top Metacritic, Rotten Tomato, all that kind of jazz. You know, talk about movies fitting the year, the theme this year of trauma. And it's a tough set. It's a horror movie. It's a horror movie that plays off the horror of this like ugly apartment. And I guess the lower, what is it? East side. Each of the family members is kind of going through their own sense of personal identity, trauma. I turned it off halfway through just because it was so depressing. It also has elements of horror that I don't like. So between the horror and between the depression, I found mass uplifting in comparison. Oh, wow, okay. That is a, uh, a statement for the poster. We're gonna go to our bottom left bracket, otherwise known as the Flea Brackets. First matchup down there, we've got Flea, the Danish animated documentary. It follows the story of this man named Amin. Uh, he's a refugee. His entire journey of like leaving his country and trying to resettle 
and that will be going up against probably much more widely seen being the Ricardos uh, streaming on Amazon Prime, so written and directed, of course, by Aaron Sorkin. And this tells the story of a, uh, a week in the life and days of I Love Lucy and the relationship between Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, the two leads, of course, played by Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. Very different movies here. I have a feeling this is going to be a uh, clean sweep for Flea, if not for the fact that I'm going to throw one onto uh, being the Ricardos. I will uh, always uh, defend Aaron Sorkin to my dying day. He is my favorite uh, screenwriter, uh, both on TV or in movies. Everything that he makes is just like very quintessentially Sorkin, and I love it. I eat it up. There are definitely are some issues with the framing. The overall like the whole thing. The acting performances in specific were excellent. I thought that Nicole Kidman absolutely deserves the Oscar. I know she's getting some criticism that like she doesn't like look enough like Lucille Ball, but like couldn't really care less about that. I, acting isn't just like mimicking the person and like looking like them. Played a version of Lucille Ball that was really interesting to see on screen. Flea, I, I thought was outstanding as well. It has a very Walter Bashir quality to it. So if that was a movie that you that you liked uh, back about 10 years ago, you may want to check out Flea. But when I'm being the Ricardos, I'm expecting that it's going to go out, but uh, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm putting my vote on Flea. I'm actually not so sure that more people saw it being the Ricardos than Flea. I feel that Ricardos <laughs> is a movie that came and left, and it kind of talked in the very top about cultural impact. Ricardos, especially given its cast and you know what you mentioned about some of the buzz over their acting, I feel Ricardo's made like absolutely no impression. I don't know where it's streaming or whatnot. You know, I'm a French Netflix guy myself. Couldn't tell you exactly how accessible Flea is. I hope it'll become much more so. I actually like being Ricardo's a lot. And when I saw it, I felt I was discovering a movie. That's how much I felt being the Ricardo's was under the radar. Two movies I like. One movie I think is just much more meaningful and complex and what they managed to put together and also accessible, if not because people can get to it. Once they do get to it, I think Flea is a movie that anyone can sort of work with and watch and have a lot of fun with and very, very contemporary. As we discussed when, uh, you know, I think uh, it might have been November when we the movie came up on our radar. So Flea has the win for me. I'm going to second Flea. I, I like Aaron Sorkin pretty well as a writer and even as a director. This was just not like a story I was super excited to see, but I, th I found it enjoyable and I agree the acting was good and I thought Nicole Kidman was, was quite good. Flea for me though was just a phenomenal movie. It was the first ever uh, movie to be nominated for Best Animated Feature, Best International Film, and Best Documentary Feature of the Oscars, which I thought was pretty neat. One of the things I mentioned when we talked about the movie back, what was it, November or December, like you said, I loved how kind of cinematic it felt in terms of you seeing like them go take one and trying to like pause the filming to like the lead character compose himself emotionally like I found that all like really interesting and uh, just one of the most unique experiences I had watching a movie this year. So I really kind of treasure that one and, you know, it can continue on here. Lee moves on. Next matchup, which is going to be between the number 13 seed, Dune, directed by Dennis Villeneuve. I don't know if you wrote it. Obviously adapted from the novel and from the earlier movie, potentially. Features a very uh, star-studded ensemble cast. Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaacs, lots of others. And it will be going against Red Rocket, which is not a space movie. So it's not really like a, <laughs> a titular matchup here, uh, intentional. Directed by Sean Baker, who was also director of the Florida Project, if you recall that from a few years back. It was adapted from a novel, and it stars Simon Rex as Mikey Saber, a formerly successful 
now nearly penniless porn star turned scam artist. I didn't love either one. I like both of them a lot, but I know that also people such as Jim, Nolan, and Richie also had an opinion of at least one of them. Go to some of the listeners. Hey, this is Jim Crumley. My favorite movie of 2021 out of the handful I've gotten to see so far is Dune. It's not a perfect movie, but it's a very good one, and I'm excited to see where they take it from. Jim, I think, immediately makes one of the arguments that anything with Dune is, where will they take it from here? The trailer was not presented as if it was a part one or part two. Managed to really cut off all the industry news and only you had seen the trailer, you would have gone in, and if you knew the story of Dune and if you knew the Lynch movie, you would have gone in and expecting that Villeneuve was giving you the full bang. And as uh, Jim said, you know, the movie might have been good enough that you didn't need that, but there is a part two that hasn't even been made yet. Should we see what Nolan had to say? The biggest cinematic experience of 2021 involved spice, alien languages, and control for power. But enough about Book of Boba Fett. Let me tell you about my number one movie of 2021, Dune. Denny Villeneuve knocked it out of the park. Absolutely astonishing cinematography. The use of space and disorientation allowed us to really get a big scope of this world. Loved it. I saw it in IMAX. I watched it again at home. No matter how you watch it, it's amazing to see visually. The story itself was condensed from the original book, I think in a good manner. Feels incomplete. I do like where they left it off. 2021, kind of disappointing. Let's go. Was Nolan referring to the year as a whole or the year for movies when he said 2021, kind of disappointing? Many people had higher hopes for 2021 than we got. Yeah, I'll take it. Just even on the podcast, and we did a pretty detailed discussion then with Justin Partridge. Whenever I watch something fantasy or sci-fi, a part of me is always defensive initially and is thinking, oh no, this is going to be that kind of bad fantasy on 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 the, the screen, right. that bad sci-fi. And I'm always a bit, and you know, oh man, like what are my friends going to think who don't really like this stuff so much? The work that overcame those concerns the most of anything in my lifetime was the first episode of Game of Thrones, where that was so authentic and so good from the get-go, there was never that concern. Dune, that concern was there, and it persisted through the first 20-plus minutes of the movie. It wasn't until the movie settled down with, I think, really that key scene. I think it's called the Gumjabar scene, where... We talked about that in October. Until then, I was just being like, this is very geeky and it's not really working and it's sort of Villeneuve throwing a lot of things at the screen with a lot of big nouns and a lot of you know a lot of capes and a lot of beautiful gowns and it all looks very nice but characters are just being thrown at you and it just wasn't working for me for the first half an hour and I was being like oh this is what I was afraid of and then from there the rest of the way it was I would say almost like a perfect big screen, flashy, sci-fi tentpole. Dune is what gets my vote because if the last, what is it, four-fifths of the movie and the remaining sequel, if it continues that high level, then I think this is going to be the best sci-fi movie ever made. Um, I think it's fun to compare the duel in the end of the movie to the duel at the end of The Last Duel, one of the better scenes of the year, the duel in the end of The Last Duel. There was a number of movies that ended with a knife fight. Side Story is another one that comes to mind. I just felt that Dune is so beautiful. I mean, it's up there with uh, The Green Knight, The Power of the Dog, West Side Story, and a few others in terms of absolutely ravishing visuals. Red Rocket is a movie that I actually thought I was going to like a bit more. And again, we discussed this, I think, maybe in December on the podcast. The, the pacing was just a bit off. 
with Red Rocket. Sean Baker is the director. I really loved Tangerine. Yeah. Probably like five years ago or so. It was one of my favorite movies of that year. Um, was less high on the Florida Project, although I still thought that was a good movie. And then I thought Red Rocket was probably his third best of the three I've seen, but still pretty good for me. So Dune goes through. I guess the thing that stuck out for me about Dune, and I did address this also back in October when we talked about the movie, was like I had no expectations for it going in. I didn't even know what it was really about besides a, a big planet and there was worms and so on and so forth. After seeing it, I just like spent two hours on like Dune, Wiki, whatever it is, doing everything I possibly could about this world. And then I watched the stupid David Lynch version. I wanted to throw myself into it, which I thought was yeah. kind of as, as high a praise as I could give for that movie, even though it was an incomplete story. But I, I really am excited for part two. John, I'm glad that you weren't so taken with Red Rocket because if you wanted to do more re- online research, research about the world of red rocket um, <laughs> you you would still be doing that research suffice to say i have to do it incognito mode <laughs> there's a lot you, of content if you urban dictionary of red rocket you'll see what we mean all right i guess i'll have to do that i'll throw it on dude as well i wasn't a huge fan of red rock i just like really hated every character in this movie and like i know that that's like you're supposed to but it takes a toll every character is miserable dune advances I go up against flea hi my name is richie and hands down the best movie i saw in 2021 had to have been dune Mm. Director Denis Villeneuve really created a worthy attitude. Ooh, is that how you say it? Classic frame. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think we'll definitely stand the test of time. The acting, especially for a complex hard science fiction film, was superb. With Rebecca Ferguson's performance, an absolute revelation as Lady Jessica. The cinematography was breathtaking. And the music was one of Hans Zimmer's most unique scores to date, in my opinion. Despite usually being against splitting a book into two films and milking it and getting as much money as possible, in this case, I just think it was a necessity. And I'm anxiously looking forward to part two, which I understand is in production right now, and really, really hope that they can stick the landing, because part one was just amazing friend of our the podcast richie man jessica ferguson did that stand out for you guys the whole cast was good the only one that like stood out to me as performance that i really liked was chalamet like you said i thought it was just a great use of him but the lady who plays sort of vice judge the black lady who sort of works for the emperor and helps them out in the last oh yeah she was movie. great yeah i thought i thought she was particularly good she had a presence her sacrifice comes across as very earned and very real as opposed to something like jason momoa who has a lot more cachet and name, but I would say his sacrifice, I guess I also wanted to see him on screen more, but his sacrifice just didn't feel as earned, despite the fact that he's in the movie more than she. So, you know, she, she really stood out for me. My vote is going to go for Dune as well in this uh, Dune versus Flea matchup. Both of these movies are in my top five of the year. So oh, wow. I'm having a hard time deciding. I've been sort of staring this down for a while because I knew we were, we were going to get to it. So I'll make it a little bit more agonizing. I'm going to vote for Flea. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I think I am going to also put through Dune. Like I have like a whole Dune week or I was just... Everything I was doing was doing related. And then I also want to like give the people a, a, a say here because we had so many people speak up for Dune and give them what they want. Dune is in the Elite Eight. Who will it go up against is uh, yet to be determined. We have four more movies to cover. The first matchup we have Riders of Justice, Danish action film starring Sammy's favorite Mads Mikkelsen, plays a fellow named Marcus whose wife dies in a tragic train accident. He is left to uh, take care of their young daughter. He eventually comes to believe that there may have been foul play involved, and he starts to investigate perpetrators. Um, And that will go against um, another revenge movie of sorts, the movie Pig, written and directed by Michael Starnowski, 
in his directorial debut, starring Nicolas Cage and Adam Arkin and others. And it follows the story of a truffle forager whose beloved truffle finding pig is stolen, and he spends the rest of the movie trying to retrieve it. You're saying we were this close, potentially, to having a Flea vs. Riders of Justice, an all-Danish foreign, foreign onslaught job. I'm going to go for Pig here. This is a movie that seems to have really landed with a lot of people. It didn't really do that for me. I did find it mostly entertaining, and I really love Nicolas Cage in this. I didn't think it quite added up to that much. As compared to Riders of Justice, I, I, I liked it quite a bit more. Riders of Justice, there's a whole thing that they do in this movie where they, they talk about like the natures of coincidences and whether something is really a coincidence or not. And I found every single part of that to be just like so ham-handed and over the top talking about, oh, here's what the movie's about, like, constantly. That part of me really took me out of the movie. I thought it was, like, you know, fun and, you know, exciting enough with some really fun action scenes. Matt Mickelson is a really great action lead. Exactly what you're criticizing about Writers of Justice of is actually one of the things that I found really thrilling about that. I love the ensemble cast, the geekiness, the earnestness, the father-daughter relationship. Pig, to its credit, sort of has a strong uh you know parent child theme as well and and i love how writers of justice without that element which you didn't seem to like of and i really uh and it really spoke to me without that it's just it's a somewhat you know just straightforward revenge great action lead but because it complicates that it does something that very few you know revenge movies or movies of this sort ever do so you sort of think in a much broader sense of accepting fate so to speak something you could say like a drive my car in its own way is happening in writers of justice and we're going to see a writers of justice american version um, i'm curious john who you think will be cast as the lead uh, the mad mickelson role in writers of why not Mad? i was just gonna say the same thing as <laughs> i was like oh they should just do mads again right i mean probably won't be it'll probably be chris pratt or something awful nicholas cage <laughs> that'd be something <laughs> yeah pig is a movie that if you would have asked me and i may have been asked this not to spoil i would have said was a movie that could win this entire bracket has a lot of those ingredients a really big name lead it's also sort of a revenge movie like that's turned on its head the two things in pig though that didn't really click enough for me. One of them is I respect the ending far more than it worked for me when I watched it. I thought the single weakest scene in Pig was what I've been heard described as, you know, one of the best scenes of the year. They're not real. You get that, right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real. Because this isn't real. You aren't real. <laughs> Okay. Derek, why do you care about these people? They don't care about you. None of them. They don't even know you. Because you haven't shown them. Every day you'll wake up and there'll be less of you. You live your life for them and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. There was the Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks where they're in the restaurant and sort of everything comes to a, a close as Mr. Rogers says something very insightful. Well, Pig tried to do the same thing where, where in this case, Nicolas Cage is trying to say something really insightful, sees the moment. That sort of is supposed to be the soundbite of Pig, and that just came across what Av was saying about Riders of Justice. That just came across so much like you're telling me exactly what the message of this movie is in a very kind of over-the-top way. And that, to me, was the weakest scene of Pig. So there's a lot I liked with Pig, and it's a movie that if it would have won our bracket, uh, which I hope it won't because I'm voting against it, I <laughs> would have been excited by. 
but Riders of Justice gets my vote. I preferred Pig slightly, but I didn't feel like super strong about either. I think they were both solid movies. Actually leaning toward putting, and I think I'm going to put Riders of Justice through, inspired by how inspired Sammy is by Riders of Justice. <laughs> so I think it deserved a, another crack at uh, another movie here. And and maybe this can be an olive branch that he can sort of like lean my way potentially in the next round. <laughs> You're going to need it. Last matchup is going to be between Come On, Come On, a black and white drama film written directed by Mike Mills and starring Joaquin Phoenix. And going up against it is The Card Counter, written directed by the great Paul Schrader, starring Oscar Isaac and Tiffany Haddish and Ty Sheridan and William Dafoe. Um, and it's about a card counter. This is the all-CC oh, yeah, That's true. Hello, uh, I am Rosa Barra, a co-founder and co-host of the Latin Excellence podcast. And in my humble opinion, the movie that I think is the best movie of 2021 is Mike Mills, Come On, Come On. Um, the movie is certainly one of those feel-good but also thought-provoking movies that has certainly left an everlasting impact on me and left me crying, left me contemplating about life decisions, about familial bonds, and literally about your day going on on your day-to-day basis. Come on, come on, it's easily the best movie of 2020. Very nice there. John, the rebuttal. <laughs> come on, come on's a nice movie. I liked it. It was in my top 30 of the year, okay? The card counter I thought was an excellent, excellent movie movie just surprising me at every turn dark movie it was sort of a in some ways kind of a listless movie for a lot of its it's going found the whole thing to come together really satisfyingly the cast was very off kilter but very good and i'd love to see it go through i don't think it's going to but uh if you haven't seen the card counter and some of the other things that i've been saying over the course of this podcast speak to you then you should check out the card counter if you're like Okay, this guy's a little crazy. Maybe it's not the movie for you. <laughs> Besides both starting with the letter C, are actually very similar to the two prior movies in that Come On, Come On and Card Counter, I think are really about an unexpected father-son relationship, about an older man sort of adopting mm. a younger man as his son, even though, you know, I suppose in at least in Come On, Come On, they're related to an extent. That, I think, is the best part, if there you know, is a best part <laughs> of Card Counter, which is adopted sort of father-son relationship. The element talking about human relationships that doesn't work for me is that the actor playing the son in Card Counter, I think just does a terrible job, feel that the emotion and the authenticity of the relationship with Oscar Isaacs, who does a pretty good job, is really there on screen. And then even more so, I felt the romance between Oscar Isaacs, <laughs> uh, and we discussed this at the time. I know, just, I know. The missing human relationships, I think Oscar Isaacs is great. It would be fun almost just to push this movie through two rounds and see Oscar Isaacs go head-to-head with himself in Dune where he also tries to be a father of sorts. I mean, I guess he's an actual father there. The human relationships were so missing for me in this movie, and they're just, they weren't anywhere. And, and you could argue that it's necessary because Oscar Isaac's role in The Card Counter is to play this man who sees himself as the worst man in the world. But the relationships that the movie wants us to believe he does make didn't work because of the poor acting of the people uh, trying to hold the screen opposite him. John, like, want to, you know, follow your, your card, but the movie didn't take me there, and, and I couldn't go there. And so th- there's things I like. I think the cool camera bit in the flashbacks are fun. Pig, Riders of Justice-esque ending is kind of fun. Come On, Come On is a movie that I didn't actively despise, like with Card Counter. Its weakness for me, and I said this when we discussed it as well, is none of the little podcast interviewing kids 
worked for me whatsoever. Come On, Come On to me is, is very mild. Oscar Isaacson, Joaquin Phoenix, two of arguably the best actors of our generation going head to head here. The gentleness and the sweetness of Come On, Come On makes it my modest pick to advance. I would break the tie inside with Sammy. Car Counter just found it very dull and just kind of kept waiting for the movie to start and then the movie was over. Come on, come on. I, uh, I thought it was just a very tender, as Sammy was saying. Um, I did also really like the, the child interviews. I thought they just like had a really just like interesting kids say the darndest thing element to them, which I know is kind of what they were going for. I have just like an affection for that uh, quality of children. Come on, come on. I thought it just really uh, captured this um, poignant uh, idea of spontaneity and, you know, making the most of the time you have with the people around you, kind of the opposite of the way many people are living these days. And uh, I thought it uh, had a really resonant message in uh, these times. So I'm going to put that one through. Okay, so come on, come on. And to determine who will go up against Dune in the Elite Eight, we have come on, come on. We have Riders of Justice. John, which one's it going to be? Even though I voted against it in the last round, I'm going to put Come On, Come On through. Movies that sort of warmed my heart this year because they were few and far between, but I think Come On, Come On did a pretty good job at that. I'm, I wasn't like a huge fan of either of the two Mike Millis films that I'd seen previously. Beginners was the first one, I think. Yeah, I was Christopher gonna Plummer that. won an Oscar for that. I, I did not like that movie at all. Uh, yeah. 20th Century Women was, I think, a better movie. Come on, come on. I think it's closer to 20th Century Women. But I, I liked it, I think, better than Riders of Justice. Stands out more to me. I'm going with Riders of Justice. Nothing the kids say in Come On, Come On is particularly insightful or is particularly funny. Now, I think those are real scenes. I think that's actually just Walking yes, Phoenix interviewing yes. little children. And, and therefore, you know, I give them that. And I'm sure he interviewed hundreds of kids. And they chose the ones that somehow worked those settings in those moments of the movie the best i didn't feel the kids said the most interesting things i'll make a quick aside there's a guy i know he has spent the last five years since i guess the first uh trump hillary election uh making a movie across america where he goes around america interviewing people to ask them about like the american question all i've seen in the movie i've you know he's been sharing kind of clips and trailers over the last five years as he goes around america interviewing people is pretty boring he just announced like a week or two ago that he just got some distributor so again credit to him i mean he's put his life into this for five years so massive credit to him Movie's going to be coming out this year called the american question but all i've seen of it people aren't saying anything that is new or sort of interesting yeah i'm going with uh come on come on um <laughs> you know I, I said before why um you know riders while i found entertaining was you know it wasn't special for me the way it was for sammy and we do have one final audio clip before we jump to the elite eight favorite movie of 2021 is pleasure by nina Thyberg. follows the long tradition of self-referential hollywood movies a lot of these movies from the 20s and 30s tend to be about broadway deep cut um, 20s and 30s. film histories progressed uh, it's allowed this narrative to regard film directly. This movie takes that narrative a step further. Pleasure's about a 20-year-old girl who desires porn star. Bring the lead. Film becomes increasingly more graphic in its sexual content. Makes sense. The aspiring artist who was formerly an actress or a dancer become a porn performer. The way people ingest the moving image is primarily in the form of porn. In a sense, porn actresses are the world's most viewed stars. Uh, but it's also just a great movie, fun to watch, and there's a lot of cameos in it from people who actually work in the porn industry. John, you had said that you were, you know, a red rocket away 
from doing a deep dive into the world of the Red Rocket. Um, if you take oh. up, that was Aida, one of our listeners, but I don't know if Aida was convincing to you guys that this is sort of want to take you back down the road of Paul Thomas Anderson. It sounds very pleasurable. I would consider watching it. Very positive review. We're at the Elite Eight. Sammy, why don't you take us home? Give us the lay of the land. So on the left side, we have Shiva Baby going up against Passing and Dune against Come On, Come On. On the other side of the track, we have King Richard against Nine Days and Licorice Pizza against Black Widow. Let's start with Shiva Baby and Passing. Shiva Baby was our number 16. It beat up on the novice. And then it went up against Worst Person in the World, the number one overall ranked movie, another movie of a similar uh, theme. And Shiver Baby so far sits atop tentpole of young women trying to figure out their lives in their 20s. Passing got here, managed to slip by Judas and the Black Messiah, a movie that we weren't sure what year it was from. And then it somehow got past John's favorite in Belfast, make it into the lead eight. Shiver Baby, number 16. Passing our number 25. Which way are you going, John? I'm not going to be upset if it goes down here, but I'm going to advance passing. Upon a passing, once it's Shiva, baby. Um, <laughs> That's the connection. Well done. There we go. It was this, week, this was all choreographed. It was all the Yes, madness. indeed. Passing was like half of a movie that I absolutely loved, followed by half a movie that I thought was like kind of meh. Um, Shiva, baby, just like really uh, spoke to me in a very just like visceral and personal way or my number one movie for most of the year um it still ended up in my top five um so you know an easy vote for me here uh, despite the fact that i thought passing was overall like you know a really powerful movie another tiebreaker let's do it so i've said that shiver baby has a certain personal message for him when he was you know living on what was it the upper west side and he was going with his parents to uh comfortable visits of family friends none of that is actually true passing was the more personal movie for me ultimately the movie to its credit is talking about a distinctly as i think all you had said in the beginning of the bracket a uniquely african-american experience blacks passing themselves off as white and then in the course of this movie also you know even a black passing yourself off as black to sort of get back into the black community after living as white for many years um, and what i found in speaking to some of my family members about my grandfather was that this idea as a minority passing yourself as a member of the majority was something also very, very common in the Jewish community, particularly in very anti-Semitic uh, communities like Minneapolis of the 1950s. Sorry to throw Minneapolis under the bus. My grandfather, who had moved there at the time, he was born in Russia. He was the one who changed the last name that listeners may know as Chester. The name wasn't an accident. Uh, like many immigrants, he was looking for a name that would allow him to pass mainstream American Canadian society. And even more so, he himself was deeply ethnically Jewish. He lived in basically the Jewish ghetto. A anecdote that I was told was that he was driving past the Jewish ghetto area in Minneapolis once with his work friends. He worked as a painter, so he was like an industrial painter. And the other guys in the truck were like, oh, there's Kikesville we're driving past. You know, yeah, I wonder what the Kikes are up to now. And they said that to him, and his name was Alex Chester. My older brother's named after him. My grandfather, whose name, you know, Alex Chester, it's not particularly ethnic. It was something he shared as if, like, I, I passed. It was an element of pride, to some extent, that he could pass. And they wouldn't know him for sort of that minority identity that he had. So I think that element of passing is actually much more part of my own, clearly, background. That sort of broader theme of passing is something that I'm really appreciative of this movie bringing out. I wouldn't be familiar with it. Therefore, you know, I can't but vote for Shiver Baby. Yeah, so Shiver Baby jumps into the final four, trying to throw you guys off there a bit. I, uh, <laughs> doesn't seem like it fully worked. We have Dune 
against come on come on come on come on got here by winning the cc card counter face off and then <laughs> as av told us it was able to quickly smush the revenge uh, writers of justice movie dune had i think a much harder way uh, to the lead eight first it had to get over red rock and then it had to hold off its own danish challenger in Dune versus Come On, Come On. Had Come On, Come On higher in my own personal rankings. Gravity of Dune is, uh, I think, too much to ignore. I deserve a spot in the final four. John, I know there was a sci-fi movie that you really liked, maybe more so than Dune. And actually, if people are looking at our bracket, Neil's face is staring out over this decision. Who will John <laughs> vote for? Dune yeah, or I Come think, On, Come On? I think he's going to approve of me putting through Dune. I actually prefer Dune to the Matrix Resurrection, so. It's going to be Dune and Shiver Baby on the left side of the bracket. Moving to the right side, King Richard, number 18. It beat up on Lost Daughter. And then it managed to be Drive My Car, who I didn't even vote for, so it actually beat Together. <laughs> and that's how King Richard made it to the lead eight. It's going up against Nine Days. Nine Days withstood Mass. And then it had to face off the winner of the all-musical face-off made it past in the heights as well. So number 18, King Richard, against number 26, Nine Days. I'm going to go with Nine Days. Both of these movies are in my top 10, I believe. You know, I've, I've dropped that a lot. I think my top 10 by now has about 18 <laughs> movies in it. Uh, something you had said several times in the bracket. I think Nine Days and King Richard are the two most accessible, and I don't mean in terms of, you know, finding on streaming, these are the two movies I think I'd recommend maybe to the most people from the year. I think that even children, you know, could take in King Richard, could take in Nine Days, certainly adults. I am going to go with Nine Days as well. I was right with, you know, top 10 movies that I would recommend to anyone. I like to do every year. Nine Days to me is just like su such a special find. This movie that like, I, I couldn't even believe it existed as I was watching it. It reminded me of a, a book I once read that I can't remember the name of, so can't recommend it to anyone else. It was also about like souls in heaven, um, like waiting to be born and waiting to enter earth. It really spoke to me. It just really captured so much of what the human experience is, what it should be, what it ought to be. King Richard was just like a really fun biopic, you know, ripped from the headlines type stuff behind the scenes of these, you know, characters from real life that we've gotten to know so well. But Nine Days is just like next level for me. Give King Richard respect for it. If it was, if it was the tiebreaker, I think I would have given it to nine days, but I want to I want to make it a 2-1 fight. So King Richard gets my vote. King Richard in Israel, they changed the title and uh, I don't know why. So they called it instead Victorious Family. Uh, that's what the Hebrew <laughs> name translates as. Like how many people saw King Richard and weren't familiar with Venus and Serena? Very few. Like, yeah. They went down the Wikipedia path afterwards and they're like, oh, wow, like that young Oh, they're actually sister, really good. <laughs> that, that younger sister like oh yeah and venus ended up winning another match after that right, final. It, it, right. the one who's barely in the movie is, is the i want people who are like really in nfts now because serena williams is too oh i'm gonna watch this movie it's about like the father of the nft woman and then they're like <laughs> oh she's a tennis player let's see who will go up against nine days licorice pizza or black widow Black Widow surprisingly won the MCU, uh, taking down the strong favorite Spider-Man, and then it withstood no sudden move. Licorice Pizza was, is, I think, the English language critically uh, darling. Mm -hmm. Even in this bracket, you saw that, as John said, the top four had three foreign language movies, and Licorice Pizza was the one uh, holding them off. You can kind of easily get by Coda, and uh, also took down a foreign language first challenge from There Is No Evil. Licorice Pizza, our number three overall, Black Widow. I don't even know what to rank it, but uh, Black Widow, our play-in winner, no one has had a harder way to the 
Elite Eight than Black Widow. Sorry, Annie, from my perspective, this is as far as I'm willing to uh, let Black Widow go. Licorice Pizza is just, you know, prototypical PTA for me. The mood he creates, the vibe, the imagery, the combinations with with sound and music. And, you know, Sam, you talked earlier about, like, directors who are able to get, like, acting performances out of people, like, as, you know, part oh, of their wow. talent. And, like, PTA to me is as, like, as notable as it comes in that the performances that he's gotten from all sorts of different places. I mean, some of them were the world's best actors. I mean, you know, we have, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, anyone could get a great performance out of them, but like those have still been like some of the, the most celebrated performances in, in, you know, modern movie history. But then to make a movie like this and have two first time actors and get the performances he got out of the two of them is just like, that's, you know, go see PTA is the full picture. Um, he just like makes sure every element of his movies are impeccable. I thought you were going to go saying that you liked how PTA got the most of these actors, Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper were essential for this movie to the extent that the best scene of Alana Haim in the movie is with Sean Penn. I think the best scene of Cooper Hoffman in the movie is with Bradley Cooper. So the way that PTA is able to take those first-time actors and have their best come out when they're going face-to-face with some of the most experienced actors on screen really is a testament to the way he works with actors, is all to say. George DiCaprio, uh, Leonardo's father, he was also a first-time actor uh, that, uh, you know, a PTA find, so to speak. Do you remember, John, of where George DiCaprio is in the movie? No. He's the guy who first sells... Uh, Cooper Hoffman, the waterbed. He's the old guy with oh. the, the young African-American saleswoman who is way too sexual for some reason uh, with this teenage boy who comes into their store. I'm going to go with Licorice Pizza as well, so it's up to you to defend Black Widow if you choose. Was cooler on Black Widow, I think, than both of you over the last two matchups, even though I put it ahead of Spider-Man. So I think Licorice Pizza earns its spot pretty handily. So before we go to the final four, another one of our loyal listeners. My favorite film of 2021 is uh, The Scary of 61st Street. Not because I think it's a particularly excellent movie, I just thought it was a very accurate depiction of kind of silly internet culture and uh, conspiracy theories and obsessions and like not going outside, which I think is the perfect representation of 2021. That was Shy Chester, the scary of 66th Street. That was no. a part of this movie. Shy, <laughs> no. <laughs> who happens to also be my brother, and the previous audio we played from the listener Aida, that they got engaged two weeks oh, wow. ago. Well, that they got congratulations. Engaged. She's a student of, of film history, and they got engaged in a movie theater watching a special showing of Valerie and her week of wonders. That's a oh, yeah, I'm familiar. Good movie to pop the question to. That was the movie that my brother and uh, I suppose his fiance uh, chose. He chose for us though, the scary of 66th street, which will not make our final four. Uh, but we do have one last listener suggestion that maybe would have supported uh, Shai's choice. Hey y'all, it's friend of the pod, Justin Partridge, uh, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Honestly, the thing that I can't really stop thinking about is still Hellbender, directed and written by Toby Poser, John Adams, and Zelda Adams. It has all the violent delights and violent ends that you would expect from a horror movie, but its center is still so endearing and sweet and maternal for a horror movie. I just, I feel like it's one that is really special and just something that stuck with me and and ended up reviewing it. By now, uh, it should be getting a wider release, either on DVD or on Shudder, but it's definitely worth seeking out. So my best of 2021 is Hellbender slash The Reckless Comic Books. Thank you all again. Hellbender, 
a movie that he also championed when he was our guest on the podcast. I know Justin also said he loved the scary of 66th Street. So John and uh, right at you. But we do have a final four that is scary in its own quality. Shiva Baby, Dune, Nine Days, Licorice Pizza. Shiva Baby, Dune. Dune is this intergalactic saga. And Shiva Baby, a story entirely set in one very awkward living room. Oh, man. Real, real tough choice. I, I love both these movies. Spoiler alert, I'm going to be voting for the winner of this, I think, in the championship. I, I'm going to give it to Dune. I'm, I'm not going to be upset if Shiva Baby takes it. But Dune, I think it's, for a lot of reasons, kind of a more monumental film achievement. But Zach Brooks just talked about like what a great theater experience it was. I didn't get that chance to see Shiva Baby in a theater. I think that probably would have been a fun theater movie also. Um, I'm going to put Dune through. Av, you've been championing Shiva Baby since it gave the shiv to the worst person in the world. I tagged along with Dune for a little bit. I think I'm going to uh, jump off the ship. Uh, jump off now. the worm. <laughs> yeah, jump off the worm. Shiva Baby acts as kind of a uh, you know, a spiritual sequel, not only to Krusha that uh, John mentioned earlier, but also um, movies like The Serious Man and Disobedience. It also just like has a lot of thematic feminist things to say, female sexuality and female self-worth. We're just like really interesting to see a movie explore. Pairs are absolutely perfect in this movie. I'm very uh, curious to see the Shiva Baby extended universe one day, more so than the Dune extended universe, I would say. I'm buying on Dune, but uh, the Shiva Baby extended universe is something that I would spend uh, the maximum amount of time in. So Shiva Baby is going to be the vote for me. Which of these two is going to the finals? But both of them, I think, are finals worthy, and both of them are, are Laurel worthy. You know, both of them could be the champion. Shiva Baby, I recall strongly that only the trailer really made me laugh. And the movie itself was just so high anxiety that I was like, I don't know if I would ever really want to rewatch this. Pleasurable, but also painful to actually watch it the first time. Dune is a movie that I know I'm going to rewatch because I know I'm going to rewatch it when the second one comes out. And then I expect the two will kind of enter the pantheon all-time uh, sci-fi achievement. The obvious gap with Dune is that it isn't a complete story. It takes a bit while to get cooking in the beginning. Shiva Baby is a focused story. Maybe, you know, it puts too many of its jokes into the trailer. You guys each try to give me a, a one-sentence case or so. You know, sum it up as why should Sammy vote for Shiver Baby or why should he vote for Dune? John, how about you make the case for Shiver Baby? Oh, okay. Uh, so the case for Shiver Baby is that it's withstood the test of almost the entire year. Accomplished uh, ensemble cast, less showy than Dune's. Dozens of actors absolutely perfect in their Large and small roles. Three to fifty. Yes, indeed. Right. Uh, what can you tell me about Dune? Why should I vote for Dune? You shouldn't. Vote for Shiva Baby. Not next. <laughs> <laughs> I think this um, is like a Survivor Tribal Council staple from the early days yeah. that like I right. just got fooled on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shiva Baby uh, marks the end of something and Dune marks the beginning of something. And I think that's kind of what drew you to Dune earlier on. I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I think I'm going to go... Ah, man, this is this is by far the toughest choice in this bracket. Um, I'm about to say one, and then I stopped, and I'm about to say the other, and then I stopped. Mm. Uh, um, I think I'm going to go with Dune because the, the music, I think, is really the reason. And I actually like music from Shiver Baby. The music is somewhat similar between the two of them. They both have this kind of horror-esque songs. I think with Richie Mann on the listener audio he sent us, I think this is Hans Zimmer's most creative and startling work that at least I can ever recall. The audio from Dune really left an impression. I can still hear it playing in my head. The sound and the sight of Dune, some of the most cinematic that I had in 2021. Shiver Baby is a movie I'm going to treasure. It's time in this bracket has come to an end. Dune, welcome to the finals. Nine days. 
Licorice Pizza. Spoiler alert, whoever wins this uh, matchup is who I will be voting for in the next round. Oh, come, <laughs> oh, come on. Two of you guys. <laughs> this one is very, very tough. These movies are both in my top five. I ranked Licorice Pizza two spots higher on my rankings than Nine Days. I feel like I want to just promote Nine Days more than Licorice Pizza at this point. I want people to go see Nine Days. I want to, you know, it, it would mean something for Nine Days to emerge as a finalist in this bracket and maybe even to win this bracket. It may uh, present itself as a little self-serving for me to make that vote. But um, that's where I'm going to put my vote for now. I want to see Nine Days in the finals. I think I might have to be called upon to tie break in the finals. Let me not put myself in the hot seat now. I'm going to go with Nine Days as well. Licorice Pizza, it had the music that Dune had as well, but obviously very different music. I'm someone who loves to run. When I'm not doing movie podcasts, I'm usually out running. And the two, I must say, do not go so well together. If you love running outdoors and you like watching movies, two hobbies that really do not together. So <laughs> dear listeners, do decide to follow my lead. At least you can use your running time to listen to movie podcasts, which is what I do. You're not going to watch movies while you're out running in the in the streets. Nine days. So exciting because I don't think of, I can't recall that we've ever discussed it on this podcast. I think I caught up with it and then you and John might have had caught up with it at different times. So the three of us never really had a chance to discuss it as we did with Licorice Pizza and Dune and Shiver Baby and others. Exciting hearing how much it worked for you you know, how much it worked for Max, John's co-host. We're going to hear a bit more from it in the finals and maybe hear a bit more how much it did or maybe didn't work for John because I'm going for nine days as well. Go for nine days also, make it a clean sweep. So we have our finalists, nine days versus Dune. Who are the movies at the Pantheon? Who are the two previous wearers of the There Will Be Pod crown. Unlike either of the last two years, this year we are going to have a winner that is not a female-centered movie. Last year's winner was Promising Young Woman. The year before that, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Not that there are no females in these movies, but don't have the centrality to them that uh, either of those two do. Either Dune or Nine Days, third ever There Will Be Pod, or I guess it was called 32 Fans Movies at some point. Best movie in the bracket of the year winner. I think we know where two of these votes are going based on uh, previous comments present the nine days side of things uh, nine days was just like a movie that really moved me really spoke to me it washed over me parts of this movie that are just like poetry you mentioned the bicycle scene earlier that's what, literally one of my favorite scenes of the year uh, maybe even i would say probably my second favorite scene of the year after the uh the time stopping scene of the worst pro- person in the world and Wong is, is really good in it winston duke as we said before wonderful in it sazi beats uh skarsgård buster bluth just like you know so many terrific performances here just like such a beautiful capturing of what what this is all about it's so simple yet so complex at the same time you know i hope as many people as possible the time to go see it really a special like wonderful little movie did ob convince you and you're just gonna make nine days to <laughs> two votes out of, out of the gate we're taking it down to the wire i'm gonna vote for dune i'm gonna be content in either scenario here but dune i think came into the year arguably with as high of expectations as any other movie that came out in 2021 and I think for even people with extremely high expectations, I wasn't one of them because I didn't really know much about it or have a connection to this, but I think a lot of people did and they were still extremely pleased with how this movie turned out. And I think that's a testament to what Denis Villeneuve put on screen, what the cast was able to put together, what Hans Zimmer created in the uh, musical lab, I guess, and so on and so forth. So I think Dune had a lot to live up to. I think Nine Days was just a sleeper that nobody saw coming. I'm okay with Goliath slaying David. Nine days. Made it all the way to the finals without putting up a single... I gave King Richard a, like a sort of a pity vote. John has voted against it twice, I guess. King Richard and with Dune. 
The Dune movie we saw is not half of a revenge saga. We have no reason to be disappointed that we did not get to see Timothy Chalamet's Hamlet-like prince get revenge on the horrors that killed his friends and family because this Dune is the complete story of a young man coming to terms that his loyalties no longer lie with his family and his people, but that he has a responsibility to the wider world. That like, you could say Moses, he has to leave the palaces of Pharaoh and head out into the deserts to become the promised messiah and redeem not his family, but the entire world. Saw Fred Hampton setting out on perhaps a similar journey in Judas and the Black Messiah. We saw any number of mainly female protagonists face similar coming-of-age stories in Licorice Pizza, Shiva Baby, Worst Person in the World, Venus Williams in King Richard, heck, even Yelena in Black Widow. Similar journeys, I guess, but perhaps without the intergalactic spice and sand dragons of Hans Zimmer. And it's uh, very much a David and Goliath. You're very correct, John. But my pick, at least, for There Will Be Pod, best movie of the year, is going to be Nine Days. Okay, wow. So a little edge of that could. Nine Days, taking it all the way to the end. Uh, only one vote against it the whole way. An Earl Cole-esque performance for Nine Days. Uh, <laughs> you know, we did a little exercise uh, at the top of this thing. Listeners already know the result. We gave a prediction of who we thought would win this bracket. And now that we've made it to the end, uh, let's see how well we did. Hi, this is John. And I think the winner of the 2021 Movie of the Year bracket for There Will Be Pod is going to be the worst person in the world. Worst person in the world only made it as far as round two, unfortunately. I think uh, I was responsible for his elimination. Oh, uh, so you self-sabotaged. <laughs> Let's see what Sammy said. Hey, this is Sammy, and my prediction to go all the way is Shiva Baby, the Jewish context, the mix of humor, horror, and focus will make it go. So Shiva Baby's my pick to win the pod. All right, not far off. Shiva Baby did make it to the final four. Before I voted against it, I think I I pulled John. (laughs) Guys, let's see how I did. Hey, this is Av, and my prediction for the winner of the 2021 There Will Be Pod Best Movie of the Year bracket is Nine Days. Boom! Did you record that just a, a minute ago after we announced the winner? (laughs) <laughs> no, I recorded that at the top of the episode. Paul, what I did say uh, when I was breaking the time, or maybe I didn't break the time when I voted, I suggested it might be a little self-serving. You both, oh, you both okay. voted for nine days anyway, so it didn't matter. Um, I knew Sammy was high on it as well. Um, and I figured John probably liked it too. So I thought I had a good chance and uh, it had a nice path. I didn't realize I'd been sort of pushing nine days enough on this podcast. I actually regretted uh, pushing it more over the past, uh, I think I saw it sometime in September. I hadn't realized I was championing it as much as you appreciate it, Al, but I'm glad to hear it because, uh, you know, hopefully now that it has the full weight of a There Will Be Pod champion back, you know, who's telling where it'll go at this point? I mean, if Edson Oda wasn't in line to direct the next tentpole Avengers movie or whatnot, he certainly is now, now that he's uh, There Will Be Pod champion. Yeah, I actually remember the exact circumstances under which I watched Nine Days. I, I heard it promoted at the beginning of the year. People were saying this is, you know, one to check out. And then I think you guys spoke about it on an episode without me. Um, mid to late November, I was in the process of switching jobs. And I went in, in between. My wife and I went to Florida for like a week. And it was one day we were raved. I sat on our balcony of our hotel room. And I watched Nine Days, like overlooking the ocean. Pressed out at that time. Like between jobs, it was like balls in the air. It was like a big cage. And like had a lot going on in my mind. Perfect movie at the perfect time as well. Mm. Just in terms of like priorities and like what what's this all about and what are we even doing here for that reason i think it really spoke to me at, at that moment in time it's also i think just a really special movie encourage everybody to go see it because it's the best movie of the year according to there will be pot we did say at the top that these were not our 32 favorite movies we will share each of our 32 favorite movies in the show notes we also 
put together the critics' top ten based upon you know the movies that the three of us were talking about. So there's a movie that none of the three of us, let's say Petit Maman, even considered. We didn't uh, put it here. But of the movies that are either in the bracket or in our top 32, very quickly, the top 10, according to critics, average of Letterboxd, Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, whatnot, is Judas and the Black Messiah, Macbeth, Spider-Man, Come On, Come On. This is not a burial. It's a resurrection. Licorice Pizza, Flea, The Worst Person in the World, Drive My Car. And then the number one, according to critics, is Q Vadis Aida. So those are some of the names that we're getting a lot of love. Uh, from those people who get paid uh, to talk about movies. How about from the three of us? My number 10 through 6, my number 10 is There Is No Evil, the Iranian movie. Number 9 is King Richard, then Flea, The Novice, and Shiva Baby. My number 10 is Coda. My number 9 is Being the Ricardos. My number 8 is West Side Story. My number 7 is In the Heights. And my number 6 is Test Pattern. My number 10 is Bergman Island, which is a movie we didn't talk about. My number 9 is The Card Counter. Number 8, Shiva Baby. Number 7 is The Power of the Dog. And number 6 is The Matrix Resurrections. My number 5 was Dune. My number 5 was Spider-Man. No Way Home. My number five is Flea. My number four is The Lost Daughter. My number four is The Dare Will We Pod, best movie, nine days. My number four is No Sudden Move. My number three is Together. My number three is Shiva Baby. Dare Will We Pod, runner-up, Dune. My number two is Drive My Car, a Japanese-directed movie. Licorice Pizza. And mine is Passing. And my number one movie of the year, which is the only number one movie of the year, according to the World Be Pod, is another Japanese, in this case also Brazilian-directed movie, Nine Days. My favorite movie of 2021 was The Worst Person in the World. And my favorite movie of 2021 is also The Worst Person in the World. Oh, wow. It's very surprising it didn't win. <laughs> I, that's why I picked it up. <laughs> But yeah. I sort of screwed the push there. <laughs> I didn't know that all right now. I didn't know that you guys were number one. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Uh, I pre-gamed and I listened to John and Max's movie podcast, where in early January, uh, John shared his top 10 on that podcast. But I think mm -hmm. at the time, John, you weren't fully caught up. You hadn't seen Liquor's Pizza. No. You, you hadn't seen a few of these movies. So I wasn't really sure how accurate that was. A few listeners told me they were sure the worst person in the world would just have a stranglehold on this bracket because they're like, look, I'm pretty sure both John and I love it. So what's going <laughs> to stop it from just steamrolling all the way through? And what was going to stop it was... Um, we ate our own, John. I apologize that we couldn't celebrate together our, our favorite movie of the year, but I think that it probably made for a more fun experience. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so that, I think it worked out okay. What is a movie that came out this year that you 10 to 24 months ago were like, this is the movie I'm most excited about? Mine was, that I mentioned it briefly in the bracket, was Green Knight. Like The Power of the Dog is probably high up there only because I love Jane Campion, the director, and she hasn't made a movie in 13 years or something like that. But I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say also I was really excited for The Matrix for all year long. So that's probably my top two. I was really excited for uh, Spider-Man, really excited for a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, anytime there's going to be one, being the Ricardos, the Aaron Sorkin movie, I'm always going to be excited yeah. for. I think the movies that I was uh, had the highest expectations for delivered, so that's a good thing. Uh, Space Jam and New Legacy, unfortunately, didn't do as well. All right, I think this has run its course. <laughs> yeah, I don't think about 2022 movies until we've done this uh, bracket, until we put the wrap on 2021. My number one uh, most anticipated movie here is going to be Nope. 
three of us can get back together to discuss Jordan Peele gives us in uh, 2022. See you guys at the movies coming here. Like. What? Be alive. Maybe we'll find out.